everybody ready? Kurt, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Uh, we're ready, Vice Mayor. Okay. All right. Uh, morning or good afternoon everyone i'd like to go ahead and bring the uh, june 6 2023 lawrence city commission meeting to order and to uh, start us off i'd like to go ahead and have sherry give us a rundown of what to expect thank you vice mayor and good evening everyone if you are attending this meeting via zoom please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting this allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat and all chats go directly to the meeting host. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. When the mayor calls for public comment, those attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak when the vice mayor, excuse me, those participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Participants will be called upon in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Please state your name before speaking and all comments will be limited to three minutes. I will also add that the podium does raise and lower. Um, so to ensure that you're seen on Zoom and that you're heard, you can use that function. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. Appreciate it. And okay, to go ahead and get us started off, I'll start with item A, approving the agenda. Uh, the City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Um, and I would entertain a motion on that. Move to approve the agenda. Second. Okay, we have a motion to approve and a second. And all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Or aye. And none. So, all right. Agenda approved. All right. Item B, recognition and proclamation presentation. Um, I believe the first one is proclaimed June 19th, 2023 as Lawrence Juneteenth celebration. Sherry, uh, is there, would there be somebody in the room? to speak to that proclamation? Uh, yes, Vice Mayor. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Marcus Logan, and on behalf of the Lawrence, Kansas Juneteenth organization, I stand before you today to express our deepest gratitude to the esteemed mayor and city commissioners for their invaluable support and participation in our Juneteenth proclamation. Today, as we gather to commemorate the emancipation of enslaved African-Americans and celebrate the richness of our diverse community, we are honored to have the mayor and city commissioners join us in this significant moment. Your presence and active involvement in recognizing and proclaiming the importance of Juneteenth amplifies the significance of this ignore, excuse me, historic event. By reading the Juneteenth proclamation, the mayor and city commissioners demonstrate their commitment to fostering unity, equality, and justice in our city. Their dedication to acknowledging the struggles, triumphs, and contributions of African Americans throughout our history serves as a beacon of hope and progress for our entire community. We do extend our heartfelt appreciation to the mayor and city commissioners for their unwavering support and for taking the time to understand the significance of Juneteenth. Your participation in this event sends a powerful message of inclusivity and solidarity, and we are truly grateful for your leadership and partnership. 
Finally, thank you for your unwavering dedication and commitment to our community's progress. I yield, I think I have three minutes. I would like to take a little bit of my time to ask publicly to have Bart Littlejohn read our proclamation from the stage at noon on Saturday, June 17th, to open our Juneteenth celebration in South Park. Thank you, Marcus. I'd be glad to. Huh? Let me look at my schedule, but I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be in the parade, so I think that'll work out. <laughs> And as a fellow uh, Leadership Lawrence 2019 alum like myself, I just appreciate all you're doing for the community, and thank you for your time today, people. I appreciate that, Marcus. Thank you very much. Uh, Who's going to read it? it was a, oh, okay. <laughs> Bart's going to read it. Bart's, oh, no. Bart's going to read it. Bart's going to read it. Oh. Thank you. All right. All right. Whereas Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration of the ending of slavery, slavery dating back to June 19, 1865, the day on which Union soldiers landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that all slaves were now free, even though President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation two and a half years earlier. And whereas Juneteenth has become a tradition of celebrations that began following the reading of the proclamation by General Gordon Granger in 1865 that has lasted over 150 years and is today hosted in cities all across America featuring rich traditions, including celebrations in the form of festivals, parades, and oral histories, also known as Freedom Day. It has continued to be a highly revered event across the country as a time for honoring one another and the memory of all those who endured slavery, and especially those who moved from slavery to freedom. And whereas Juneteenth allows people of all races, nationalities, and religions in cities across the country to join hands to acknowledge a period in our history that shaped and continues to influence our society today. And whereas Juneteenth today celebrates African-American freedom while also encouraging self development and respect for all cultures. And whereas Lawrence and Douglas County will commemorate Juneteenth with a number of events from June 16th through June 17th, 2023. Now, therefore, I, Bart Littlejohn, Vice Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim June 19th, 2023 as Lawrence Juneteenth celebration and call upon all residents, government agencies, public and private institutions, businesses, and schools to commit to our community to increase increasing awareness and understanding of our shared history and how it shapes our lives today. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see y'all there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yep. All right. Uh, looks like our next proclamation is proclaimed the week of June 17th through 23rd, 2023, as National Waste and Recycle Workers Week. Uh, Sherry, do we have anybody to speak to that one? Uh, yes, we do. All right. 
Good evening, Vice Mayor and Commission. Mike Lawless, Deputy Director for Municipal Services and Operations. Um, I'm excited to be here tonight to celebrate um, Waste and Recycle Workers Week um, that's coming up. Um, our employees pick up trash, recycling, and yard waste, and uh, they do this six days a week. Um, they do this until the job is done. They don't get to go home just because the two o'clock day ends. They're here till the, the work is complete um, for those six days a week. Um, they work in all kinds of weather conditions, whether it be a very warm day like today or some of the cold weather that we had earlier this year, whether it's raining, snowing, sleeting, they're out there, they're doing that work. They also work in all kinds of conditions from the alleys that we have to the residential neighborhoods then they go out to the landfill to empty the trucks that we fill. Um, they also go to the material recycling facility, or sorry, recovery facility, to uh, empty the recycle trucks. Um, we have dedicated employees, and uh, I'm proud to work with them every day. And um, I want to thank you for celebrating uh, Waste and Recycle Workers Week, and thank you for this proclamation. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. All right. Whereas Lawrence celebrates the week of June 17th and 23rd, 2023 as National Waste and Recycling Workers Week, and whereas sanitation and solid waste workers have worked selflessly and tirelessly in all types of environments, weather, pandemics, civil unrest, and at risk to themselves and to provide solid waste services to protect communities and residents prevent disease and keep our community clean, safe, and beautiful. And whereas the people who serve the city of Lawrence's municipal services and operations department contribute significantly to the safety, health, and welfare of our residents by processing thousands of tons of garbage, recycling, and composting annually. And whereas the residents of Lawrence, Kansas depend on the collection, proper disposal of waste, recyclables, compostable, compostables, and leaf and limb to promote a clean and tidy community regardless of weather and global pandemics. And whereas the proper collection, disposal, and maintenance of waste, recyclables, and compostables are vital to preventing disease and unsightly litter and Whereas the city of Lawrence values and celebrates our local solid waste workers for their commitment to our residents, businesses, and communities as professional employees. Now, therefore, I, Bart Littlejohn, Vice Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim the week of June 17th and 23rd, 2023 as National Waste and Recycle Workers Week and urge all residents to join me in thanking the hardworking men and women who ensure our communities are kept safe, clean, and healthy. on to item C, public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. 
All right, Sherry, um, if you would go ahead and start that portion. Go right ahead. Good evening. My name is Isaac Johnson, and I am here with no SB 180 Lawrence. SB 180 makes it possible to criminalize trans people for using sex-segregated spaces like bathrooms. This past March, I went to the state capitol as part of my job. I went wearing a full suit and spectator shoes from my boyfriend. I interacted with everybody as a man. Despite this, when I went to the bathroom later to wash my hands, a man noticed me and followed me out when I left. I knew he recognized me as a trans man from the way he glowered at me when I stopped by the water fountains for a drink. He continued trailing me until I moved quickly enough to lose him in the crowd. Since then, I wonder what would have happened if SB 180 was in effect. He could have reported me to Capitol Security, who then could have removed me from the bathroom or the building altogether. I could have been questioned, arrested, or fined simply for washing my hands after lunch at a public event I was intending for work. Additionally, my sex marker on my ID, which still reads as female, would have imme immediately outed me. If I don't get a change to mail by July 1st, I lose a chance to do so altogether as a consequence of SB 180. No SB 1 80 Lawrence wants Lawrence to remain a safe place for trans people. Therefore, we demand that one, the city commission declare they will not enforce SB 180. Two, the police department declare they will not fine, arrest, detain, surveil, or incarcerate trans people for using sex segregated spaces. And three, that the city commission issue an ordinance that Lawrence will be a sanctuary city for all trans people. I have been a part of the Lawrence community for seven years. Please keep Lawrence safe for me and all the other trans people here. Thank you. Okay, um, all right, the next person. And Sherry, if you could, just give me a heads up when we reach time. I'll say time when we, when we reach time. Okay. All right, before I get started, I'm just gonna say, hi, Craig, <laughs> or neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to add that SB 180 is an inherent public safety risk to everybody in the city, not just trans people. In addition to harming trans people intrinsically, SB 180 encourages some of the most disruptive public nuisances in our society to essentially engage in their activities to an even greater extent. It gives them a legal backing to do so, functionally making them legally mandated vigilantes. As the last speaker noted, people have followed him into the bathroom recognizing that he's trans and intending to harass him, but otherwise being unable to due to legal limitations. With those legal limitations gone, these people don't really necessarily care if you personally are trans, as long as you look potentially trans or as long as they think they can identify you. The last speaker obviously wasn't like obviously trans. There could be a cisgender man that looks just like him, and to an equal extent, any transphobe would follow that person into the bathroom and harass them them equally as they would a trans person. Functionally, SB 180 gives a legal mandate to any form of public nuisance, vigilante, bigot, whatever, to follow us into bathrooms, harass us, peer through bathroom stall doors, and essentially propose a public safety risk to the people living in Lawrence and in Kansas as a whole. Additionally, this needs to be dealt with with extreme urgency, as once you open the Pandora's box of vigilantism, it's very difficult to close. Even if SB 180 were blocked in Lawrence three weeks from now, once people have started acting as vigilantes, they may not necessarily listen to this. It is best to stop SB 180 before this becomes a potential risk. 
if you're interested in public comment, you can just keep lining up and moving <laughs> through. Um, Vice Mayor and members of the Commission, my name is Sylvie Altoff. I am a trans woman living here in Lawrence, Kansas, and like the last two speakers, I'm here to speak with you about SB 180. Um, I'm a member of this community. My family owns a house here. I own a business. Uh, I have friends. I perform music. I write. I babysit. Uh, and I, after July 1st, I will be breaking the law every time I leave the house and engage in public life. Uh, if I have to use the restroom, when I am volunteering uh, with Food Not Bombs, uh, I'll be breaking the law. I'll be in violation of SB 180. Um, I've heard through some of my uh, friends in, my, in the LGBT community that many of you members of the commission um, find SB 180 abhorrent, that you disagree with it, that you disapprove of it, and you have no intention of enforcing it here in Lawrence. And um, that's wonderful to hear, and it does nothing to protect my community or my family. Your good intentions are appreciated but insufficient. And if anything is, if we do not get anything more than good intentions, my family and members of my community will have to leave this town and this state for our own safety. Lawrence touts itself as a, a progressive, open-minded place where diverse individuals and their families are welcome. And Lawrence is not living up to that promise now. Um, we need something more than uh, private well wishes. We need a resolution, we need an ordinance, we need something to actually protect ourselves from the implications of SB 180. Thank you. Hello, commissioners. Uh, my name is Rowan Schering. I'm a longtime Lawrence resident, and I am also here to talk about SB 180. Um, we must not stand idly by as the targeting and harassment of trans people is legally enforced. We might not be able to stop SB 180 at a state level, but we can still show up for each other and stand up to an unjust law. Please create and pass an ordinance establishing Lawrence as a sanctuary city for trans people. And Please have the Lawrence, city of Lawrence officially state that it will not enforce SB 180. And please have the Lawrence Police Department create an official policy that it will not arrest, harass, detain, um, or otherwise, um, or otherwise, essentially legally discriminate against trans people under the guide of SB 180. Um, thank you for everything that you have done and continue to do to make Lawrence a safe and inclusive place for people to live and to make it someplace that I'm proud to call my home. Hello, commissioners. My name is Monty Coash Johnson, and I live here in Lawrence. Commissioners, I come to you tonight to speak on behalf of myself and all other transgender and gender nonconforming people in Lawrence, Kansas. We are not asking, we are not begging, we are not state. Uh, we are stating that you are going to be passing these demands that we have made. You claim to be on our side. If that is true, you will make an ordinance as soon as possible. This ordinance will state that SB 180 will never be enforced in Lawrence, Kansas, and neither will future outwardly transphobic legislation. Do not ask me to calm down when you will never understand what it is like to be inside my shoes. 
I'm scared. Our demands are the bare minimum. They are non-negotiable, and you work for us. You claim to be our ally, and yet you have been silent about what you plan to do to combat SB 180. We have written out what we want you to do. Pass these demands. Lawrence will not enforce SB 180. Lawrence police will not enforce, arrest, or detain or, uh, detain people under the guide of SB 180. And Lawrence will make an ordinance to become a sanctuary city to protect transgender and gender nonconforming people from SB 180 and other transphobic legislation. Thank you. I didn't have anything prepared. I'm not that smart. Uh, my name is Magnus Prim. I'm a lifetime Lawrence uh, resident. I've been here since I was a baby. I was born in Topeka. I've been a lifelong Kansas resident. And I'm also transgender. Uh, one thing that I always appreciated growing up in Lawrence is that it is, at the very least from the outside compared to the rest of the state, relatively left-leaning, relatively progressive, and relatively kind compared to many other places in our country. I was very lucky to grow up in a place where, in general, I wasn't going to be harshly condemned for being the person that I was for not necessarily fitting in in the way that many people expected me to. Uh, one thing that has been disappointing growing up as an adult here is seeing the many ways in which the city underperforms when it comes to actually standing up for minorities. Uh, I'm thrilled that we have a formal celebration of Juneteenth in our city now. I am less than thrilled that there has been no public statement as of yet about SB 180, especially considering the many ways in which gender discrimination is racialized in our country. I'm particularly concerned about the implications of legal harassment and public vigilantism with regards to gender discrimination and people not performing gender in the way that is considered adequate in our country. I would respectfully urge the commission to consider that there is not much point in having any form of cel celebration for racial equality if we are not going to also have celebration for gender equality, considering the many ways in which not only women, but also men of color are, per are targeted for their own failures to meet the, let's say, racialized ideal standard that our country has set. Thank you very much. Good evening. My name is Justin Brace. I'm the executive director of Transgender Kansas. My pronouns are he, him, and I am an intersex trans man. When Transgender Kansas was founded in 2019, we decided to locate Lawrence as our headquarters and are currently in running for Best of Lawrence. We chose this because Lawrence has been a safe place for us. We love our community, and we wish to be here a very long time. Last week, we sent you proposed legislation over email and mail for an ordinance to enact this city to be a sanctuary city, as we have in 20 other cities we are currently working with. We will send it again tonight after this meeting, but after having our organization be the ones to sue the state to allow us in the first place a few years ago to change our gender markers, and we won, we are asking that you here in Lawrence don't enforce SB 180, because there's a reason we won that lawsuit. There's a reason that we are here today. Our students and our schools, KU, USD 497, both have LGBT groups. 
we are going to be deterring students and families from moving to Lawrence if we do not have a sanctuary city. We have been working with the police department and LMH to protect trans people and further equality. All of that will be repealed if you do not make Lawrence a sanctuary city. We do not want the economic hit. We don't want the safety hit. We don't want people to be falsely calling the police on people they think are trans or are not trans every time one of us wants to use the bathroom when we're out and about, especially myself, an educator with USD 497. We need to enact a sanctuary city, and we look forward to working with all of you on making that happen because it is not an option. Everyone in this community's safety is at risk if we do not do something. Thank you. My name is Christina McKenna, and I come to you as a cisgendered woman and a mother. I have asexual and bisexual children in my family, and without doing some measure to protect them, you will lose my family in Lawrence. We just bought a house here last year. The school got closed down where we were living, and we are now trying to figure out how to take care of that for our family. Do not discriminate against my children. Do not discriminate against single parents who have to take their other gender children into bathrooms and take care of them. Do not discriminate against people who have disabled children and need to take care of them. It doesn't matter what age they are. Sometimes an adult child cannot handle themselves in a public restroom. We need to allow for families to be the families they are and to raise their children the way they need to. We need to allow for parental love to still happen with their children and without it being a gender marker issue. I may never be discriminated against because I was born female, but I have other things that people assume just because of how I look. Would you like someone assuming something of you just because you look a little different than them? If not, do not enforce SB 180. Thank you. Hi, my name is Devra Arkakita, and I am mad that I have to be here to talk about why people deserve to have basic human rights. Um, like, where else are they supposed to go if not the bathroom? Um, I'm a queer woman. I um, know that a lot of people argue that are like on the opposition that they're worried about sexual assault, and I've never felt unsafe in a bathroom with a trans person as somebody who has been a victim of sexual assault. But I have always felt unsafe being in a room with people who think that other people are lesser than them and do not deserve any rights. It starts with bathroom laws. Where does it go from there? It will only escalate. The building blocks for genocide is in your hands, so make the right choice. Hi, my name is Carly Pryor. I have come as a private citizen against SB 180. Um, I don't really need to say anything that hasn't been said before. I'm sure y'all can tell there are some pretty high tensions and pretty emotions, pretty high emotions. Um, I would like whatever you guys decide going forward that you please remember to keep transparent. If there is an issue with state or county or federal legislation that is barring you from doing what we are asking, begging, pleading, and demanding for, that you be completely transparent, that you let us know how we can support this town to do what this town needs to do. That's my only comment. Thank you. Hello, my name is Evan Washacek, 
a concerned citizen. I have friends and family who are trans and who are queer. And this town I moved to about five years ago, and it has prided itself on being inclusive and building on the history of the John Brown image. And if we can't live up to even the standards of basic human dignity and allowing people to be in bathrooms and not be uh, victims of vigilante justice, then I, I can't see any justice and any reason to uh, continue. Thank you. My name is Amy Helmer. I'm from um, South Florence. Um, I think I just got here, but I assume most people have already brought up, um, you know, th these are human rights we're talking about. This is the protection of trans people we're talking about. And that I hope will be enough for us to consider protecting this community. But if it's not, I want to point out that um, you can't afford to lose the people who will leave if it's not protected. Um, every conversation I've had since SB 180 came out with my queer community has pretty much been a little bit of small talk and then how long can you stay here? How long can you survive in Lawrence? How long can you stay in Kansas before you move? Most of my friends are planning to move. These are people who are community educators. These are teachers. These are social workers. These are campaigners, people who are canvassing, um, talking about candidates, making people aware of the issues that happen here. These are people who work blue collar. These are people that keep the city running. These are people that need to be here for the trans kids who will need someone to protect them. So in the spirit of human rights, but also in the spirit of keeping Lawrence Lawrence, please pass the sanctuary ordinance. Hi, um, I am not trans, but I just wanted to share a little experience to maybe kind of hit home some of these things. Um, uh, the other day, um, someone was, a cisgendered man was uh, hitting on me and asked if I was trans and I said no. And he said that I was lying because my shoulders tell a different story. So imagine just like, just what am I gonna do? And I, and I feel like that I present pretty, I don't know, like uh, pretty cis here and I'm just like, I, I'm gonna go into a bathroom and somebody's gonna be like, are you trans? Your shoulders, because I, because I have shoulders apparently. Um, like, this, is, this is someone who's not trans even, and I have many people um, in my life that I love, and I've also never been scared of any of the trans people I've met or in my life. I'm not afraid of sharing a bathroom. I have been assaulted multiple times and none of them were by trans people. Um, I just, I love Lawrence. I grew up here and I had a conversation with my partner the other day about whether it was safe for us to stay here or whether we might need to find some other place. And I don't want to leave. I love Lawrence and I just hope that you will all like, you don't know, make me proud. <laughs> Good evening, commissioners. <laughs> My name is Jenny Robinson. I'm a social worker and an LGBTQIA affirmative therapist here in Lawrence. I'm here to speak with you about SB 180. 
As a queer woman and therapist who works predominantly with queer and trans folks, I experience and see the distress that transphobic and homophobic legislation has on our community. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are considering leaving, wishing they had the means to leave. Kansas is our home, Lawrence is our home. Our community members deserve to feel safe here, deserve to live and thrive and find joy here. This is not just a bathroom bill. This is a bill that says you are dangerous and we will protect our fragile understanding of the world by means of violence. The enforcement of this bill opens historically oppressed and marginalized folks up to further violence and oppression. It is not based in any kind of supportive evidence, only in fear, unconscionable ignorance, and hatred. Our city came alive this past weekend to celebrate pride. If you allow this bill to become enforceable in our city, your show of pride is an empty shell. If you allow this bill to be enforced, you're actively contributing to the erasure of and violence against our trans community members. I urge you to not only create an ordinance establishing Lawrence as a sanctuary city for trans and gender non-conforming people, but also require a statement from the chief of police detailing their plan for how they will respond when, it, when erroneous reports are made, and explicitly how they will maintain Lawrence as a sanctuary city. Without an ordinance or a clearly agreed upon plan, we open ourselves up to misinterpretation, change direction, and ultimately the continued violence against and oppression of our trans community members. To be focused, clear, and direct on this is to save the lives and protect the well-being of our community members. Thank you for your work on this and for your time. My name is Ilya Vernikov. I'm a cisgender man, and I moved here in August. When I moved here, I was told that Lawrence was somewhat of a gay mecca of Kansas and the Midwest in general. But with the passing of SB 180, I personally couldn't believe it. SB 180 threatens the safety and the comfort of my friends, my family, and a lot of people that I care about. The SB 180 campaign that I would consider successful demands three very easy to enforce things. Firstly, the city of Lawrence will not enforce SB 180. Secondly, the police department of Lawrence will not arrest, detain, survey, incarcerate people under the guise of SB 180. And lastly, the city of Lawrence will create an official ordinance that establishes this city as a sanctuary for trans people. That's all I ask. Thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Iridescent. I am a former teacher, a resident of Lawrence, and currently an educator uh, working here um, at KU. I am here representing um, Equality Kansas, and I'm here really to speak about SB 180 and specific, specifically about the harm that it's going to do and where this comes from. I've testified at our state capitol multiple times, and like our first speaker said, I was uncomfortable when I was there. I used the restroom, I was followed when I was in the restroom, I was mocked when I testified, and I was mocked when I was unable to testify because our state legislature didn't want to give us the time because they wanted to give the time to every single speaker that they had. They're out of state or they're doctors who have not been practicing medicine for over 30 years. The reason I bring this up because I 
didn't get the chance to testify against SB 180 is really because we're not given the time or the care or the consideration from our state legislature. But we need that kind care and consideration here because Kansas should be a state for everyone, whether that's gender identity, gender expression, race, religion, you should have the freedom to choose and the freedom to live as you want. A lot of this legislation that we've seen across this country, because we've seen this sweeping wide, and Amy spoke earlier about friends who have been considering leaving. I've grown up in Kansas my entire life. I grew up in Shawnee, and I moved here to go to grad school. I was one of those friends who does not feel safe in our state, but I would like to continue to still feel as safe as I can in Lawrence. I have been stalked about once a month since last August by members of our community who oppose this ban that we want to put on SB 180. Laws like this have been sued across the country mostly because our rights are protected under the um, Equal Protection Clause. The reason I am here is to speak out of justice and out of what we pride ourselves to be, which is the free state. And if we want to be the free state, we have to make it free for everyone. Earlier, we've heard people talking about genocide. We've talked people talking about how they, cisgender people who have been questioned because of their physical appearance. This is the first stage of genocide, and if you need me to, I can email and explain why I've done it with the legislature. We deserve to live, and we deserve to live just like anyone else with the same peace and tranquility. Thank you. Good evening, Commission. My, my name is Joe Leipel, and I go to the University of Kansas for clarinet performance. Every month or so, I have a wind ensemble concert where um, members of my ensemble or orchestra have segregated um, dressing rooms. Oftentimes, if we have a guest artist, there will not be enough dressing rooms to have a gender non-conforming dressing room. Therefore, I would be put under pressure for, I, I would be fearful of harassment or detainment for doing, for participating in activities that are required for my major. Also, something I haven't heard anyone else here tonight speak about is the higher suicide rates among transgender people in the United States of America, especially among trans children. This bill will inevitably result in higher trans suicide rates, especially among our kids. Please do not enforce SB 180. The Lawrence Police Department should not arrest or detain trans and gender non-conforming people using SB 180. The city of Lawrence needs to enact an ordinance to establish Lawrence as a sanctuary city for trans and gender non-conforming people as Kansas City has already done. In action for establishing this ordinance will be intentional, will open trans people up to harassment, detainment, and will increase suicide rates in our community. 
I beg you, do not enforce SB 180. Thank you. Hi there, my name is Claire and um, I use she, her pronouns. Um, there are people I love who are trans and gender non-conforming. People in my family, um, my friends, people I work with, um, some of my faith community members, people in Lawrence. Um, and I hope to one day be a mental health therapist and I hope to work here in Lawrence um, and give back to the community that has given so much to me. Um, and in order for me to do my job, I have to make sure that the um, city of Lawrence is doing theirs. Um, so I'm here with no SB 180 to say, please make this a sanctuary city, just as Kansas City, Missouri has declared itself a sanctuary city in um, May. The reason I want Lawrence to be a sanctuary city is not just so we can protect our um, community members today, but to com protect future community members. Um, the Trevor Project estimates that more than 1.8 million LGBTQ youth ages 13 to 24 seriously consider suicide each year in the United States. And at least one attempts suicide every 45 seconds. The Trevor Project's 2022 National Survey on LGBTQ Youth Mental Health found that 45% of LGBT youth seriously consider attempting suicide in the past year, including more than half of transgender and non-binary youth, as we have seen in more anti-queer legislation than ever before. This past weekend, I went to Pride, and I met three teenagers from Marysville, Kansas. It's 100 miles away in a very Republican county. And these three teenagers told me that it was their third and fourth pride, and it was my first pride, and I'm 23. These teenagers who cannot leave their homes because they're not yet 18 have hope because there are cities like Lawrence who give them a fighting chance. In order to heal from depression, to heal from suicide, we have to have hope. These bills are very anti-hope. They're anti-trans, they're anti-hope. So please help us make Lawrence a place of hope for these teenagers like the ones I met from Marysville who traveled, again, 100 miles to be here for Pride. Thank you. Good evening, um, can you hear me all right? Yeah, if you want though, you can raise that up because there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Megan Williams. I use she, her pronouns. And I am very proud to be working with some amazing trans residents on the No SB 180 campaign here in Lawrence. Um, I'm a cisgender woman. I'm a proud feminist. And I know that this is not about protecting cis women. This is about upholding patriarchy, which harms me and my trans sisters and my gender nonconforming siblings. Um, I just want to say that some of the most incredibly beautiful human beings in my life are trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. They enrich my life in so many ways. And um, I just, I, I demand, I do, I demand that you not enforce SB 180, that the Lawrence police does not enforce SB 180, and that you make this city um, a sanctuary city for trans people. Thank you.
Hi, my name is uh, Miguel. I'm a Lawrence resident, and I'm also here with the No SB 180 in Lawrence campaign. My trans partner is here with me today. We've been together for three and a half years in Lawrence. Up until now, we've been able to live our lives in this community in relative peace. We've been able to go to events at the Lawrence Public Library and other city institutions without worrying about whether or not my partner could use the bathroom in peace. With the passage of SB 180 at the state level, our safety has been thrown into question. We can no longer be certain that we can go to the library, use the city pool, or go out to eat at a local restaurant without having to wonder if he'll have to face discrimination for simply existing. As the political leaders of our community, you stand at a historic crossroads, like many leaders have before you, who've been tasked by those above with carrying out an unjust law. You can either choose to enforce the oppression of marginalized people in your community, or you can make a stand and protect them from discrimination and abuse. I urge you to make the right choice. Choose not to enforce SB 180. Choose to pass an official ordinance making Lawrence a sanctuary city for trans people. And direct the Lawrence Police Department to enact an official policy that it will not enforce discrimination against trans people in Lawrence. Choose to stand on the right side of history. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. I, I came here to speak about something else, um, what happened last week, but I'm going to hold off on that till next week. But I do want to ask, um, for ed everyone here, it, just so people know what I'm talking about, last week the mayor broke the rules and threw out a speaker who was trying to criticize the police department. So I'm going to save that for next week, but what, what some ideas I've just been having is just off the top of my head, is there any way we can make our own law against false accusations? So if someone wants to complain that someone's used in the wrong bathroom, if they're wrong, can there be legal ramifications against them for saying someone's the gender that they're not? Just because that, that puts more pressure on them to be sure before you go and start harassing people. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. like. I fully support what everyone here is asking for, but also, I just when it comes to trans issues, I think about what this, our own city has done. Um, there is a law against women going topless, and I've argued against that because that differentiates between a man and women's body, and I believe um, a high court has ruled against that and that um, it's unconstitutional because it's sexist, yet I, I've, I've mentioned that, and I don't believe our city has made, um, I don't know, maybe they have, but last I knew, we still had that law on the book, and if there's a topless woman, a woman, I mean, I've seen it on the community scanner, people call it in to complain, why don't we get rid of that rule? I mean, let's talk about body anatomy, or anatomy, um, autonomy, um, ah, gosh, I'm all messed up, but... <laughs> Just people, if a man should have the same a right to do something, so should a woman. And and like rules like that, that differentiate between a man and a woman's body, that's part of what's leading up to what bathroom you have to use. So why doesn't the city also look at some of our own laws that are outdated and start getting rid of those? And fully, I fully support making this a sanctuary city for the trans community. Thank you.
me or should I? You're okay. You're good. Okay, sorry. Um, my name is Merritt Parsons. Um, I just wanted to talk about, everyone else is talking about, um, Senate Bill 180, just because I've been following it for a long time. And this is not, I have it here with me. This is, it says it's here to protect women and there is nothing in here that protects the rights of women at all. It's hate legislation, honestly. And if we enforce this in Lawrence, that's going to be pretty much government-issued harassment, government-backed harassment of members of our community. Um, and I am a cis woman, and so I can't completely speak on the experiences of my um, trans constituents, but what I will say is I do not think that anyone should feel unsafe to go outside because they don't know if they're going to have a place that's safe for them to like go to the bathroom or just exist. And I also don't think that we should be giving anyone, we shouldn't let anyone think that they have the power to look at me or anyone in here or out there and decide whether or not we're feminine enough to exist in a space with them. Um, so yeah, that's what I have. Thank you. Hello, hello. Uh, I'm Hannah Blair. I'm trans feminine. I'm a childcare worker and a trained school psych living here in Lawrence. Actually came straight from work with snot on my shirt, so um, thought it was really, really important to be here to talk to y'all. Um, every day I look at the news and I feel threatened by the widespread oppression queer people are facing and it boggles my mind that basic human rights, such as being able to go to the restroom, um, are treated as by the majority as something that's worthy of debate. Um, meanwhile, in my life and the life of my siblings, uh, we're considering our options. Uh, we're looking at the ACLU's map that tracks the ever-increasing 491 proposed pieces of anti-queer legislation across the country and looking for the safest place to live. And many consider upending their lives to move to those safe places, but as the days go by, those safe places dwindle more and more. Um, so this erosion of freedom is the anti an, an antithesis to the founding principles of the United States. Um, and SB 180 passing confirms a genuine, in a genuine visceral way that queer Kansans are less free than cisgender straight Kansans. Um, already my queer siblings approach the simple private task of using the restroom with anxiety. We fear judgment, we fear violation, and the worst cases, we fear alter altercation. Um, now the very thing we fear is being supported and provoked by the state of Kansas. Um, yeah, so whichever reason, whichever restroom queer people choose is seen as an act of defiance. Either we choose one and we're defying socially constructed gender norms, or we choose the other and now we're defying the law. 
and both choices risk discrimination. Both laws, whether unspoken or written, need to change. And as representatives of the people, you have a responsibility to meet the oppression of this bill um, with opposition. Uh, please give queer Kansans of Lawrence another reason to hope. It's the mark of a strong civic body to recognize an unjust law and openly defy it. Uh, SB 180 is unjust because it's degrading to trans and non-binary people. It is a law created by a majority MOOP imposed on a minority Hi. group. Okay, thank you very much. Michael, Lawrence Accountability. Like Chris Flowers, I came here to speak about the lawlessness of the commission last month, um, but I'm gonna belay that as well because of the importance of the issue before me. Um, my only purpose up here tonight is to remind everybody what happened last year when we discussed a sanctuary city issue. Uh, this was about the immigration sanctuary city, one that a number of people came in here. And I, I think it's, it, it, we're gonna need a lot more pressure. And honestly, we're gonna need a change in the commission to be able to have any kind of sanctuary around here. Because these exact commissioners are the ones that buckled to state law last year and got rid of the immigration sanctuary. So we're gonna need new commissioners. That's up to you to vote new commissioners in. That's all I have to say tonight, guys. Have a good night. Well, hello, Nancy Snow. Good to see you all. I haven't been here for a while. Uh, I, too, had some comments that I'm going to hold until next week. Uh, however, following up with Michael's comment, uh, I did look up on the Lawrence Times a website the um, the bad news that the Lawrence City Commission submitted to state law struck down immigrant, immigrant protections from sanctuary ordinance by a vote of four to one. Uh, Commissioner Shipley at that time, you were mayor and you were the only one to vote against. Uh, that buckling, that backing down as I understand it, thank you for that. Uh, some of the other commissioners were upset. Commissioner Larson is uh, pictured dabbing tears from her eyes. Uh, Commissioner Sellers said she would fight on. Commissioner Finkeldye, here's your quote. Uh, here's what you said. Commissioner Brad Finkeldye said the commission had been, quote, put in a difficult situation, end quote. And he agreed with the others that they would continue to fight to be a welcoming community. Well, here's your chance. Fight to be a welcoming community. You haven't done well on the issue of homelessness. That's my issue, as you know. I'm continuing to fight for that. Our trans brothers and sisters and their allies are fighting for their rights. Join the fight. Pass this ordinance. Don't back down. Please, do the right thing. Thank you. Good evening. I'm uh, Marcy Francisco. I came down on a different issue. Um, but first, I will address 
Senate Bill 180. Um, after all, hearing all these comments, I'm even more proud to have been a strong no um, against that. And apologetic that more of my colleagues had not yet been able to visit the new airport at MCI, where the bathrooms are not gender specific. So hopefully we have an opportunity to, um, it's not cheap, um, but as we build, um, make sure that our restrooms are not gender specific. That makes it possible for all of us um, to use that space. Um, anytime you've used a porter potty, <laughs> it didn't say men or women, it just said you can use this. So I'll go ahead. Um, I came down um, to talk about something on the consent agenda, but also thought I would address Ordinance 9876, which is our um, rental licensing ordinance. Um, I'm pleased that the commission has very much supported um, landlords doing Section 8 housing. And I uh, mentioned this to a couple Marcy, people. And Marcy, I think this is just public comment. Could you, would you be able to hold that until the uh, consent agenda part of it? No, that that's on our consent. Go on. That's not I'm on. not talking about something on the consent agenda. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm also saying that I'm talking about Ordinance 9876, which is rental licensing. Um, I appreciate that the commission has supported um, uh, section 8 and specifically 6-1306K exempts Section 8 properties from license fees and inspections um, the, because these properties already go an annual, undergo an annual inspection, yet 6-1310 calls for the inspection of 20% of the total properties with inspection licenses. So I'm hoping that you might consider a change to the ordinance to call for an inspection of 20% of the properties exempting any that are already being um, inspected under Section 8. Right now, um, if you do the math, if you have 10 properties and eight of them are Section 8, the other two have to undergo inspections. And I believe that you don't want to eliminate any inspections, but you also don't want to um, penalize those um, landlords that are participating in the Section 8 ordinance. So I'd be happy to follow up um, later on any of those comments, but appreciate this opportunity um, to address this issue. And I want to also say I so appreciated the good work from the um, rental inspection staff this past year working with us. Thank you. Is that all the public comment in the room or here? Okay. Um, Vice Mayor, I'll start calling on those on Zoom. Sounds good. And sorry about that, Marcy. <laughs> Alex Kimball Williams. Hi, yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. 
Um, I'm here to speak for SB 180 as well. Um, we cannot accept the state legislation here in Lawrence. We cannot normalize dehumanizing trans people because um, that's what this is. It's saying that they don't matter. It places them in harm's way and it puts a target on their back for people to, as people have already described, um, self-deputize to harass and harm them, um, which is just amazing to think about, um, you know, when they're already out here with some of the highest assault and murder rates without a law like this in place in Kansas. Um, it's not lost on me that SB 180 is mislabeled as the Kansas Women's Bill of Rights, and it's also not lost on me that the bill jeopardizes over $17 million in federal funding for Kansas. Um, it's really important to look at who's passing the laws, and it's white cis men who make up the majority of the state legislature leadership. Um, they want to call something the Women's Protection Bill when it's really about maintaining their superiority. Um, so, of course, the law doesn't consider all the intricacies of single parenthood or disability um, because it's the most privileged people who are putting it together. And Governor Kelly was completely right to veto this when it was just a bill. Um, folks deserve our, our support whose lives are at stake. And the goal isn't to live under the state's law like there's nothing that we can do. Um, we're not here to build another underground railroad, but rather to challenge the state's law through our example of policies. Um, this law is about showing some of the best people in our community that they don't belong. And the law is already losing funding for the state of Kansas, but there's so much more that we can lose. Um, that's my baby. Um, if we don't stand up. Um, as the blue dot in Kansas, we need to stand up or else other Kansas communities don't have as much of a chance. And I'm speaking as a native person on this land, and the majority of you are settlers. Um, and us as indigenous people predominantly respect trans and two-spirit people. So I just want to put that out there as something to remember and think about as you respond and make a loss for a stolen land. Thanks. Jeremy Roth Cashel. Thank you. Greetings. This is Jeremy Roth Cashel. And I would like to speak to the importance of the respect that we must have in relationship to our government officials, both elected and non, in terms of the input and the deliberative uh, process by we the people. This is proven out by the vitality of the public input that the commission has just heard, which if the very harsh deployment of the newly uh, created term of business germane to the commission had been used in ways that the uh, absentee mayor and, and commissioners have done in prior meetings, in terms of restricting public input about issues that are clearly germane to the business of the city and the commission, that this could have been harshly uh, shut down because is there a bill yet? Is the, does the city commission have a, have a bill in front of them? No. So this is a, just one more example of the importance of understanding the nature of our system of governance. It, in the hierarchy of sovereignty, we the people are the legitimate source of any proper deliberative governance. 
And I will just point out in terms of missing minutes, so I won't be able to address them because they are not there from the last meeting, that people who might be more uh, read more than listen or watch will not be able to know based on the minutes of this meeting what uh, interested members of the public have given over to the commission. So we need to fix that. We need a real written uh, minutes record. And then additionally, in terms of Juneteenth and the celebration of Juneteenth, I want to return to the vital issues that we as Lorenzians need to understand in terms of the background of our system of government, which includes the city manager system of government. I will remind folks of an article in the Mainer at MainerNews.com titled 99 Years, The Racist Roots and the Results of the City Manager System of Government by Samuel James, written just last year. So now we're at 100 years since Ku Klux Klansmen, cowardly with a K, uh, marching down the street in their white uh, gowns through Portland, Maine in 1923, were supporting the city manager form of government. These are the kinds of big issues that we need to be able to talk about and know that our city commissioners, our mayor, our vice mayor, our city manager, our other city officials will not try to harshly abort our debate uh, and our deliberative input. Thank you very much. Jamie Miller. Uh, I'd like to start by saying thank you, commissioners, for providing this opportunity to hear public comment. I am here today to address Kansas Senate Bill 180, captioned as Women's Bill of Rights. First and foremost, this bill was born out of hate and discrimination. This bill does not establish any rights for women. It only works to restrict the rights of transgender population. Don't be fooled by hate speech. Additionally, the so-called testimony, which was nothing more than hate speech, presented to the legislature and which was used to pass this bill is not based in fact. It just simply is not true that biological boys, I refer to call them, I refuse to call them men, are pretending to be transgender women and attacking women in public restrooms. The facts show that biological little boys, regardless of their age, are attacking women in all locations, and this bill will not change that. Secondly, this legislation is not based in science. There are 23 pairs of chromosomes that define every physical, psychological, and emotional aspect of the human body. The belief that 22 of these pairs of chromosomes combine in an infinite number of possibilities, while the 23rd pair can only be binary, is simply absurd. The truth, whether you choose to recognize it or not, is that the 23rd pair, the pair that determines gender, has the same infinite possibilities as the rest of our DNA. Third, this legislation is unconstitutional. The Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution guarantees the right of the people to be secure in their persons against unreasonable searches. This law cannot possibly be enforced without violating this amendment, as conducting a search of my sexual genitalia would be nothing less than sexual assault. When I do not consent to any per person conducting such a search, and all attempts to force compliance is sexual assault. Further, it would be a violation of the Fourth Amendment and HIPAA rights to search my medical records for such 
such evidence. Additionally, searching previous court, civil court rulings, which were legal at the time of the ruling, or vital records held by this state or any other state for the purpose of enforcing this legislation would violate the Fourth Amendment right of the people to be secure in their papers against unlawful search. A person simply making an accusation based on their opinion and lacking factual, factual knowledge that I am male, female, transgender, or any other aspect of my physical characteristics simply cannot establish probable cause for such search. Finally, the Tenth Amendment prevents the states from enacting legislation that reduces, removes, restricts, or otherwise modifies the protections guaranteed to all citizens by the Fourth Amendment. Fourth, this legislation is unenforceable as it does not contain an enforceability clause or specify penalties for violations. An unenforced law, also known as symbolic law or dead letter law, is a law which is formally in effect but is usually not penalized by a jurisdiction. Such laws are usually ignored by law enforcement, and therefore there are few or no practical consequences for breaking them. The existence of unenforced Fine. laws has been criticized for undermining the legal system in general, as such laws may be selectively enforced. Lastly, on a personal note, I am a veteran of the United States Army. These attacks on my character by implying that I am a sexual predator, attacks on my identity through refusing to recognize my name and gender, attacks on my rights as I previously described, and attacks on my freedoms through arbitrary and selective enforcement of this legislation is incredibly insulting. I wore the uniform. Honorably, I sacrificed and became disabled because of my service. I defended the very rights that are, be that are now being taken from me. I swore an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, my government, specifically the Republican Party, has positioned itself as a domestic enemy, and I will defend my Constitution. Because as Americans, all people are guaranteed equal rights and protections under the law. Therefore, we the citizens of Lawrence, Kansas, demand, and it is your oh, Mr. duty. Miller, uh, yes. Mr. Miller, you're well over your time. Sorry. I, I I'm on my last paragraph if you let me finish, Mayor. Uh, I'm sorry. You, you, you're well Thank over you. your time. Okay. Thank it you. is your duty um, by your oath of office to reject this law. Thank you. I yield back. Kevin Elliott. Hi there. I'm from Lawrence, Kansas, born and raised around here. Uh, most of you all know me. Um, the City Commission has recently asked me to stand up and be a good citizen of this community, and I've done that. And now I'm asking you to make sure that, that me and my trans husband are not second class in this community. I trust you will do that. I trust you heard what, what's been said tonight. Um, so I really want to focus on a couple other things about this issue. Um, trans kids, trans people commit suicide at an incredible rate. And the proof shows that one affirming adult can make a difference. This is your chance to save somebody's life. If not, do what's right, do what's good. Save somebody's life tonight. Please, I beg of you. It's, I've never, never thought anything was more important in my life. Um, we, we're, we're part of this community and we plan on staying part of this community. Me, my husband, and our kids. Um, we need to be sure that this community stays part of us. Thank you. 
Cassie Ainsworth. Hello, commissioners. Um, I am here also to speak about SB 180. Um, my name is Cassie Ainsworth. I use she, her pronouns. I am a therapist here in Lawrence. Um, a good chunk of my caseload is um, trans and gender non-conforming folks. Um, there's been so much valuable information presented to you all about so many variations of this, including the mental health component of this. But I think it's really important to name that I am deeply concerned about the mental health fallout from this bill going through. Um, especially as has already been mentioned numerous times with this higher suicide rate in the trans community, um, transphobia is trauma. This sexism is trauma. Not being protected, seen, valued in your community is trauma. We are neurobiologically hardwired for a sense of belonging. There's no way that somebody could experience a sense of belonging under the umbrella of what's being experienced here. Um, and I'll have to admit, I didn't really prepare anything, mostly because I didn't think that my kiddo was gonna let me talk here. Um, she's been watching this whole thing with me. She's six years old. The reason she's been watching this whole thing is because her best friend is leaving the state. I had to explain to her as I watched the tears well up in her eyes because she's losing her best friend, that the reason her family, the, her friend is moving is because her family is fleeing the state because the state is not safe for her family anymore. So I think it's really important to note the extent at which people are impacted by this. So I'm just asking you to please protect the people in the community that you serve. Thank you so much for your time and for hosting space for this. Jack Hawthorne. Hello. Um, I am speaking tonight as a non-binary person who's lived in Lawrence for over 10 years and as a business owner um, and as someone who's been discriminated against um, when I've tried to use the bathroom before. I had an instance in like 2015 in St. Joe where I was at a bar and someone uh, demanded to see my ID and told me there wasn't a trans bathroom and there weren't laws on, that I was aware of at the time. And now we, we do have a law like that. Um, and it's not currently enforceable in any way, but we know that that's what they're gonna do next. In Florida, you can get up to a year in prison for that now, for being trans and using the bathroom. I see people all of the time, um, people I love, people who I consider family because queer people are my family, we are family, they are my siblings. They are running because they are scared and they are in danger. And the fact that I, as um, a community member, have to put up a sign in the window of my business to tell people that they can come in there and use the bathroom. That's a very dark place where we're at. We're in a very dangerous position. And so I ask that with the power that you do have as city commissioners, do everything that you can to make this place a sanctuary for queer people so at least not everyone has to leave Kansas 
if we can make our blue bubble a sanctuary city, maybe Wichita can be a sanctuary city someday. But even if that's not within your power, work with us, please, to do everything we can in Kansas to try and make us safer, because this law is just intended to humiliate us. Thank you. Kirby Evers. Kirby Evers. Stephen Watts. Okay, great, thank you. Is the video and audio working, please? Yes, it is. Excellent. And I came tonight to discuss another matter uh, following your public effort at shaming on May 16th, but that can wait. Because how important tonight is to have this large community of people come to the town commission thinking something will be done. We are a town filled to the brim with John Brown talk and no action. We have actors doing that and that's pretty much it we must find ways to break away from this we've always done it this way orientation which currently exists as ways to restrict new thinking are focused on rather than looking for ways to get things done we must insist our town legal team searches for ways to do things rather than finding ways not to do them we must be able to scratch the surface of our town and find it has depth and not mere window dressing. I am hopeful my good friends who have appeared this night asserting their rights as Americans to participate and shape government will be listened to and Lawrence can begin to recapture the vibrancy and the solidarity with regular people that we have missed for so long because we have decided to go where the money is with our focus on money. So let's see if you will accept the challenge to craft an ordinance to protect people. Thank you for your time. Kirby Evers. Vice Mayor, I think that's all the public. Vice Mayor, Vice Mayor, um, I, I sort of beg your discretion. I, I know it's unusual to ask for any comments from staff at this time, um, but I, I would do that. Uh. I'm, it is unusual, um, and in lieu of everybody being here at this moment, uh, it's something that um, I would be, I would lead towards, as opposed to making them wait towards war commission items. Um, uh, 
did you have anything in particular you wanted to go ahead and say? I, I really appreciate that, Vice Mayor. Um, I, I believe that legal staff is is has looked into this somewhat. Is there any comments staff can make at this time? And we're watching the issue closely. Um, Craig recently tasked Dr. Muhammad and I to work on this matter and contact other communities. And um, we've also been in contact with the Kansas League of Municipalities. Um, and they are um, promising to provide us updates as they, as they learn more about it. Um, so that's all I have to say at this time. Thank you. Um, Uh, I, I've, I've, I've opened it up, and I, I don't apologize, Vice Mayor. <laughs> uh, it was worthy to get, uh, at least to know that staff has has been tracking this. Um, clearly, it's important to the community. What would normally happen um, is that we would, one of us might bring this up at commission items, which would be at the end of this meeting. We have a regular agenda, and you've all kindly come at public comment, um, uh, which is what the vice mayor was uh, commenting on. So. Um, uh, I, I hasten to expect that all the commissioners uh, have have some feeling about this, but also I don't want to commandeer the meeting um, in a way that is unusual. Uh, I, but I do want to address the public and make sure they understand that that we are addressing this. Commissioner Sellers. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Um, I appreciate Commissioner Simply making the comments. I do want the I do want to remind the commission that two weeks ago I did bring this up in commission items and the work that Tony and Dr. Muhammad are doing, I would imagine is a continuation based on the the question that I brought up in commission items regarding SB one eighty when that was discussed. So um, I do believe that's been stated several times. Uh, to those who have emailed and text um, in regards to this matter. And uh, I, I just don't want commissioners to feel like we need to duplicate efforts that have already been done. Thank you for the reminder, Commissioner Sellers. Uh, all right, with that, it would close public comment and move us on to item D, consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered under one motion, approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on these items. If discussion is des desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak on an item that has been pulled from the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Is there an item that the any of the commissioners wish to be pulled from consent? it up to the public. Is there an item that any of the public wish to be pulled from the set? Go ahead. Go ahead, which item? Uh, this is Marcy Francisco. I'm asking if you would pull D6E for public comment. Is there anyone online that would like okay, to? I'd like. Okay. Uh, it's D1A. 
And no one online has indicated they have an item to pull. To pull. Okay. That's it, Vice Mayor. All right. Thank you, Sherry. That's the case. I would entertain a motion for the approval of the consent agenda absent D1A and D6E. I move approval of the. Hello. Oh. <laughs> I counted two. So, okay. Move and second. I there mean, we you go. stated the motion, so it made it easy to say so move. So, there you go. All right. Looks like we have two on there. Um, looks like no opposition. And uh, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Aye. I said aye. I keep forgetting to say aye. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, consent approved. Absent D1A and D6E. Uh, we'll start with D1A. Hi, this is Chris Flowers. I just have a quick question. I was just wondering um, where are the minutes from last city commission meeting and if they will be added next time or are we just not going to do them at all? Thank you. Because the only ones that are on here is the one from the joint with the county, but last week or last meeting minutes aren't here yet. So thank you. I can go ahead and answer that, Vice Mayor, if you'd like to, or if you want to see if anybody else has public comment on the minutes before I respond. Uh, let's go ahead and see if anybody else has public comment before you respond. Is there anyone in the room who wants to provide public comment on this item? Uh, Jeremy Roth Cashel. Okay. Thank you. This is Jeremy Roth Cushell, and I think that the question of minutes and uh, missing minutes from weeks ago's meeting, including the question of what looked to me to be an unequal application of subject matter discrimination, potentially based on viewpoint discrimination or prior express viewpoint in terms of public comment uh, that then resulted in people being removed from the meeting needs to be rectified. And it points to a bigger issue that we've been continuing to talk about in terms of the problem of these literarily incomplete minutes. And as the prior uh, public comment deliberation pointed out, the minutes should cover the public controversies of the time. And they should also cover the kinds of details that we might need to consider in terms of whether the commission is unequally applying their own rules in terms of how uh, public comment or comment on a specific agenda item are being applied with, to me, apparently time, place, and manner inappropriate uh, discrimination based on viewpoint and subject matter uh, jurisdiction that's not appropriate. Thank you. That's all the public comment. Okay. Uh, Sherry, if you would, respond. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so we attempt to get the minutes on um, the next meeting and generally we're able to do that. Um, we just had some technology issues with timestamping this one and the video and so it will be on the next regular agenda. Um, our iCompass software we use is generally pretty reliable but every now and then we run into glitches with being able to watch the video and make sure that we're getting it accurate. So um, they should be on the next agenda. 
Um, and I also will say that we are currently looking at, um, uh, we do ha use, um, put our videos on YouTube, which does transcriptions, but we're looking at a more useful way of having a transcription. We'll continue to, that we'll bring forth to you all, but that way there is a more intent, uh, extensive record of what is discussed. Again, those will not be the minutes because we do action minutes, but we will have that trend, looking at having a transcription available. Thank you very much, Terry. And, uh, and uh, this is an approval item, right? That's correct. You'll need a motion. Okay. I would entertain a motion to go ahead and approve the uh, Joint City Commission County minutes of May 15, 2023. I would, um, first I'd say thanks, Sherry, for looking into the transcription services. I, I do think that'll be a helpful addition. But I'd move to approve the City Commission meeting minutes from the Joint City Commission County Commission meeting. Second. First and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Okay, as none opposed. And it's approved. Thank you as well, Sherry, for going ahead and looking at that. That would be very helpful. Um, moving us on to D6E. Thank you so much for allowing me to make a few comments about the process and the design. Good news, I'm more calm than I was over the weekend. Um, I learned of this project from our Oriad neighborhood residence president. He was asking if the parking request for here was on the agenda. Um, that's been delayed to July, but um, we saw that the project for improvements to 11th Street was be, to be considered this evening. The report includes the comment that MSO staff has also contacted the property owners directly impacted by this project to inform them and gather feedback. If you look at the property or the map of this proposal, uh, our property at 1101 Ohio is the only owner-occupied property that is affected and they hadn't heard back from us. I called the Municipal Services Office on Monday. Indeed, a message had been left on our answering machine. But alas, if it's not blinking, I don't check the messages, and I don't always get messages from my otherwise very responsible um, spouse, Joe. <laughs> I did get a call back on Monday, and our properties will be affected. The message is still on my machine. The only address um, was 1101 Ohio, not our property at 1046 Ohio. Two messages could have been helpful. The first city commission meeting I ever attended was over 50 years ago to express my objection to the alley easement between Louisiana and Ohio, 11th to 12th being abandoned. That leaves the properties on Ohio Street um, with no possibilities for off-street parking. I was asked if I had any concerns about the parking being eliminated. I do. Um, it's almost always used. But then I heard that the decision to propose eliminating the parking was made at a previous um, multimodal transportation committee meeting. So at this point, it doesn't matter. Here are my asks. If there's more than one property involved, leave two messages. Mail would be preferable to voice. 
If the project is in an area with a neighborhood association, please also notify them. In this case, parking is a concern throughout our neighborhood. I understand there will be more detailed engineering discussions for project in a historic district with sidewalks on two sides of the street. Please consider requiring sidewalk standards on only one side in terms of the width. Um, we have a beautiful brick sidewalk with limestone edging. The sidewalk to the north has a lot more pedestrian traffic between the dorms um, and downtown. I assume that the project may block access to our driveway off 11th Street. I hope the city might consider extending the residents only parking on Ohio for us during the construction phase. And I agree that the roadways, sewer, and water lines need to be improved and look forward to the opportunities for residents to comment more. Thank you, Marcy. All right. Um, leave any discussion from uh, mission on this or open it up to public comment. You guys might ask staff yeah. if they have a comment on the process. Anyone? Yeah. Is there any staff here that can speak to that? Yes, commissioners. Uh, good evening. Uh, Omar Mali, a project engineer, MSO. I'm, I'm the project manager for this project. Um, so we are, uh, this agenda item is to uh, authorize the city manager to sign a supplementary agreement with the engineering uh, um, consultant we have, professional services engineering, uh, professional engineering consultants, PEC. Uh, to continue with the design phase. So what was happened over the past couple of months were to uh, go through the conceptual design and the 30 percent design plans and take a couple of multiple options on how to incorporate uh, pedestrian and bike facilities in that um, project and that intersection area uh, to the Multimodal Transportation Commission. And we have done that on December 5th, and they have provided us with the recommended options to uh, complete the design with. Now, the engagement that we've been, um, um, personally, I was contacting uh, the, in, the directly uh, impacted properties. This is kind of an early engagement uh, with the uh, properties, property owners. So I've uh, let them know, give them heads up about the project while we're still in the conceptual design and be, uh, give them like the opportunity to uh, provide their comments early on while we're in the third person design. Now we still have um, uh, in the scope of work, uh, public engagement and official public engagement where we will be uh, inviting property owners in a specific radius so they could uh, um, talk about the project, understand what is the project and provide their feedback and we could design around uh, some of their uh, feedback. So we will be reaching out to um, property owners more than what I've been personally now reaching, reached out to in the past couple of months, um, but that's gonna come in on this uh, supplementary agreement. Thank you. Okay. All right, any further discussion on this or questions? Okay. Uh, at this point, I'll go ahead and open it up to public comment. Sherry, is there any public comment in the room? Uh, yes. Good. Good 
Good evening, Michael Allman. Um, I'm a bicycle advocate in Lawrence, and I support climbing lanes. I just got here, and I'm not sure what the position of former mayor uh, Marcy Francisco is, but <laughs> I do support that, although I would say it's kind of odd that the first climbing lane that Lawrence has proposed is on a fairly unused street for bicyclists, one that which most of them have to walk up anyway, um, whereas 9th Street is a much higher priority for a climbing lane uh, west of um, um, Avalon Road. Um, this, the commission, planning commission and city commission has discussed that particular project a number of times, as well as the multimodal transportation commission. So I hope you notice that that is in the capital improvement plan as a proposal. Um, one other thing about this project that we're discussing tonight is that it also includes extending the counterflow bicycle lane on Louisiana Street one block. This is a lane that, as I recall, Mayor Francisco initiated, one of the first bicycle lanes in Lawrence. Thank you, Mayor Francisco. Um, and somewhere back when the university uh, pretty much tore down a block of houses and put in scholarship halls, Kind of a side note to that that most people didn't know is that the city gave KU Louisiana Street in the 13, in the 1200 to 13, no, 1300 to 1400 block. I didn't know that happened. That bicycle lane disappeared that, in that block. It's all parking now for KU. It's um, a red zone. I would really like to see that renegotiated so this lane would retake its original form of three blocks. I don't know what can be done there, but thank you. Is that all the public comment in the room? Um, Jamie Miller. I just wanted to draw attention to the comment that I placed in the meeting chat. Thank you. That's all the public comment on this item, Vice Mayor. Okay, and I'll go ahead and bring it back to us. Um, any further discussion on this item? <clears throat> Looks like a good, I mean, a good project. Look forward to having more conversation with the neighbors and, and working on the climbing lane. I think the, I live right by the 9th Street. That's a hard one to, climb up too without walking, but if you can do it, I'm, I'm proud of you. But I would move to authorize the city manager to execute the supplemental agreement number one with professional engineering consultants in the amount of 185985 to proceed with the final design of staff and M MTC's recommended alternative for the reconstruction project of 11th Street, Indiana to Ohio and Louisiana, 11th to 12th CIP MS 220063. Okay. All right. First and a second. Uh, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any none opposed? So unanimous. Uh, all right. Good to go. Thank you all. Moving us on. Oh, I'm sorry. 
before we get started with regular agenda items, can we take a 10 minute break? Oh, I apologize, Commissioner Sellers. Absolutely. Um, 10 minute break, everyone. So meet back up at 7.33. F, regular agenda items. Uh, number one, uh, receive an update on the single-use plastic ban or pla single-use plastic bag draft ordinance to provide direction to city staff. Who was uh, going to be addressing this? I am. Good evening, right. Vice Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Kathy Richardson. I'm the City Sustainability Director, and I'm the champion of the Environmental Sustainability Commitment in the City Strategic Plan. Also with me tonight is Nancy Muma uh, with the Sustainability Advisory Board, as well as on Zoom, uh, Randy Larkin, our Deputy City Attorney, Jeff Crick, our Director of Planning and Development Services, and Brian Jimenez, uh, code official and assistant director of planning and development services. Uh, tonight's agenda is to receive an update on the single use plastic bag draft ordinance. And we are also requesting your feedback and direction. My presentation will be brief and I will hand it over to Nancy for a brief presentation as well. And all the staff um, are available for questions um, from the commission. So this topic has been discussed for several years now. And this uh, agenda item does have the link to all the previous meeting discussions. But as a reminder, uh, we were here in January of this year um, to discuss with the city commission on um, policy options to reduce single-use plastic bags in the community, uh, including a fee model, a ban model, um, an educational campaign. And we did ask for policy direction. Uh, and you uh, directed us to uh, draft an ordinance that enacts a ban on plastic bags, single-use plastic bags. So the ordinance uh, drafted by the city attorney's office is attached. Uh, the current effective date on this draft ordinance is January 1st of 2024. Uh, just wanted to bring that up. Um, this, this is a draft. Uh, so um, as with all my presentations about policy items, I do highlight which key performance indicator within our city strategic plan is being impacted. <laughs> and uh, while this item does fall under the Environmental Sustainability Commission, commitment, um, it would not address or move the needle on any of our current KPIs on our strategic plan. With that said, the commission may choose to prioritize this work. Also, as noted in the memo, I just wanted to highlight um, that in 2020, 2022, and 2023, there was preemptive legislation that was introduced but not passed in the Kansas legislature that would prohibit municipalities from adopting or enforcing an ordinance resolution or regulation that would restrict tax, uh, prohibit um, or regulate the use of something like single-use plastic bags as well as plastic straws, cups, containers, et cetera. 
So back to this draft ordinance. Uh, this ordinance was shared with the Sustainability Advisory Board earlier this year. And the board did have two edits uh, for the ordinance. One was a typo um, that they caught, and that has already been corrected in the draft that's before you. The second is they are requesting to add language requiring 40% post-consumer recycled content for single-use paper bags and for reusable plastic bags. So basically they would like to require of those bags that can still be distributed like the paper, single-use paper bags and the reusable plastic bags, they would like a requirement that those be 40% post-consumer recycled content. The Sustainability Advisory Board members uh, did uh, reach out to some grocery stores during the past couple months um, to discuss possibly adding this requirement of the 40% post-consumer recycled content, which many other cities also require. And um, Nancy Muma can expand on the findings talking to grocery stores on this. Uh, one item I just wanted to highlight as we've been discussing this um, over some time, uh, there are some stores in Lawrence that have been working towards their goals uh, to reduce single-use plastic bags. For example, Sprouts uh, earlier this year made an announcement uh, that before the end of the year at their checkout, they were going to eliminate single-use plastic bags. Uh, the Lawrence store is already making this transition and they offer reusable plastic bags which are 40% post-consumer recycled content and of which they charge 10 cents per bag. These are the reusable plastic bags. Sprouts had already stopped offering uh, the single-use paper bags. So with that super brief presentation, um, I am going to turn it over to Nancy Muma with the Sustainability Advisory Board for her brief presentation. And after Nancy's presentation, uh, we will turn it over to you for any questions you may have of uh, staff or Nancy on um, you know, specifics within the ordinance, uh, the fiscal impact uh, that we covered within the memo, or any specifics um, on, on other enforcement issues. So I'll turn it over to Nancy. Well, thank you, Kathy, and thank you for commissioners to, to have me um, talk with you tonight about this single-use plastic bag ban ordinance. So um, I'm here talking to you as, as a member of the Sustainability Advisory Board, but I also want to mention that I have a PhD in pharmacology and toxicology, and I'm the chair of that department at KU. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the toxicity of plastics. And this would be a background for why I want to urge you to pass this ban. So Single-use plastics make up about 40% of the plastics that are produced in our country. And they don't degrade very quickly. They break down into smaller and smaller bits, nanoparticles, microparticles. Those particles are in the air <coughs> we breathe, the water we drink, and the food we eat. So each and every week, on average, we consume about a credit card's worth of plastic. Each week, that's a lot of plastic in our bodies. And this stuff isn't benign. 
So it causes an immune response. Our bodies say, oh, that's foreign, let's go attack it. We get chronic inflammation from this. That chronic inflammation is associated with lots of diseases like cancers, like heart disease, bowel disease, arthritis, all kinds of problems like dementia and depression, anxiety. That's some of the stuff that I study in my lab at KU. Okay, so the, in addition to the immune response, plastics also have some other chemicals that are associated with those, like hexavalent chromium, BPAs, the bisphenol group, PFAS. You've all heard about the toxicity of these chemicals. They cause cancer. They also are what we call endocrine disruptors, so they mimic the hormones in our body, our estrogen, testosterone. They disrupt the development of our reproductive systems. It decreases our fertility, and it's especially dangerous for developing children and unborn children. So these plastics and chemicals have been found in placentas, human placentas, and breast milk. And it causes infertility, it causes perturbations in our, in our reproductive systems, okay? But the good news is, is we're here tonight and you can do something about it. You can decrease our exposure to plastic by banning single-use plastic bags, by requiring the plastic bags that are thicker and reusable have post-consumer recycled content so that we decrease the amount of plastics we produce, the amount of plastics in our environment. So this would be a really terrific way to begin to address this, this terrible issue. So, there are already over 152 cities, uh, nine going on 10 states that ban single-use plastic bags. There are many cities throughout our, our country and Washington state that require the thicker reusable plastic bags to be made up of 40% post-consumer recycled content. So these bags are available. Currently, uh, CVS, uh, Walgreens, and Target use those plastic bags that have 40% recycled content on the, the plastic bag themselves. So these plastic bags are available, the paper bags are available that have this uh, recycled content. So I urge you to please consider not only banning the plastic bags, but requiring the post-consumer recycled content. There's a lot of people here today that have brought they're reusable bags. It's an easy pivot for us to, to, to use these bags instead of using bags over, uh, a single time and throwing them away. So thank you so much. And any questions, I'd be happy to help. Thank you very much. Um, all right. This time, I'd like to open it up to the commission for any questions. Uh, uh, Thanks, Vice Mayor. Sorry, I hope I can't see everyone, so I hope I'm not interrupting. Um, I was interested, um, Kathy, in the um, the suggestion that we have a full-time, uh, or an FTE, uh, but that two-thirds of it may not be used on this program, but might be used on uh, some other, I'm assuming, code enforcement um, uh, responsibilities. Can you clarify that at all? 
Sure, and I do know that Brian and um, Jeff are also on Zoom, but I did want to just clarify, this is a position, the fiscal impact is a, that's a position that does not currently exist. So uh, the Planning and Development Services Department is requesting um, that uh, position, that FTE for the 2024 budget. And it is my understanding that they're estimating about one third of that person's time would be for enforcement of this ordinance. And that would include salary, benefits, and a vehicle. Uh, again, Jeff and Brian are on this call, so if they had additional information, they can. Here's Brian. Uh, hi, Brian Jimenez, Code Official Assistant Director with P uh, Planning Development Services. Kathy's spot on on her um, overall um, statement on that. Um, basically, um, it's hard to predict how much time would be dedicated to this ordinance. Obviously, we believe the time would be um, more so at the beginning and hopefully um, go down as time went on and people became compliant. So it's a real uh, uh, rough estimate on our part that the, the monetary value is, is accurate. The time spent is is really a guesstimate. So we think we're in the in the in the ballpark on that. Um, just to clarify or expand on what Kathy said, um, we we would utilize the the extra FTE um, to do the to do the enforcement of this. But we also believe that the uh, other time that this person would have available would be well spent on regular code enforcement activities that um, we can improve efficiencies on. And just a, a little follow-up on that. Um, I make I made an assumption in my mind when I read it. Would that be, for example, long-term rental, short-term rental, or would that be any kind of complaint-based code enforcement? Great question, Commissioner Shipley. Um, just to give you a quick summary, I have four code compliance officers. Two are um, specifically um, for long-term and short-term rental. Two officers for the entire city for all complaint proactive stuff um little plug here we've increased our population from over thirty thousand people we've never increased our code enforcement staff from two um, so we believe it's, this would be the opportunity to not only help out with the ordinance but also help us in, in other aspects of our job that might be falling behind just due to the increased workload thank you Sorry about that. Uh, Commissioner Sellers, leave you out your hand up. Thank you, Vice Mayor. So to piggyback on that, Brian, I know you said that there's the anticipation and hopefully that the work would die down. Uh, so this is a way for us to bring another FTE on board for code enforcement to address the population growth. So is it in your mind that you anticipate after maybe two or three years that this additional FTE would have no responsibility for code enforcement on the plastic bag ordinance or would they always have at least some percentage of their FTE and their PD dedicated to code enforcement? Another great question. I, I, I Trying to forecast this is really difficult. It's it's an enforcement that's uh, unlike any that we do currently. <laughs> so I'm, I was trying to think how this would play out down the road. I think the answer to your question would be, 
I would always anticipate some part of this person's position um, to be dedicated to the enforcement of, of this ordinance because at any given time, you can have a new business uh, be in violation. You can have some, you know, who knows what type of reasons we would get complaints. So um, for sure, this that, that person would be dedicated to that enforcement. And what percentage is, is really hard to say. Okay, and not to diminish the possibility of having another FTE, because uh, that is something to discuss, but in, and this may be a question for the Sustainability Advisory Board as well. When thinking through code enforcement or the enforcement of this ban, was it always the thought of the board to go with an FTE within the city, or was there other suggestions that were brought up perhaps maybe this living within the health department because of the alignment to not only this being environmental but this being also having a public health component to it so i just didn't know if someone was there to answer was it always the intent to if there was a, an enforcement piece for it to live within the city or was there discussion about perhaps this living within the work of the health department I, I can answer that question, um, Kathy Richardson, Sustainability Director uh, for the Sustainability Advisory Board, since I've been working closely with them. So uh, for a very tiny, brief period, there was some conversation about the sustainability department uh, potentially uh, being the enforcement and the education uh, piece and so forth. Um, as you all are aware, uh, the city of Lawrence has a sustainability department of one. Um, so that uh, idea, um, you know, just kind of progressed to the sustainability advisory board really uh, leaving it open to the city to uh, figure out how we were gonna do enforcement. They really left that uh, section out. If you see their draft of this ordinance that they took a stab at early that we showed in, in um, well, they showed uh, back last year and it was linked to the agenda. It really left that enforcement piece uh, blank, uh, allowing the city to, to kind of discuss and figure out what we could do. So um, the best we could come up with was uh, the planning and development services uh, department being the enforcement uh, group, uh, but certainly open to other suggestions and ideas. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Um, I, want, I wanted to go back to a comment that was made about the 40% consumable plastics and that there were a couple of entities that already do th that already have implemented that, such as I think I heard Sprouts, Walmart, pardon me, and Target. So as far as it relates to the ordinance that kind of covers most of our grocery retailers. So is the idea, I guess my question is, is the idea that the ban would be the plastics and encouraging all retailers to move to that 40% post-consumable, not just grocery retailers, but also you know, clothing retailers or I, I'm trying to make the, the balance between that additional comment, how it relates to the ordinance since that piece is not in the proposed draft ordinance. 
Uh, Commissioner Sellers, um, Nancy Muma, I can address that question. Um, so I mentioned this because I wanted to let everybody know that those uh, thicker uh, bags that are, are allowable are available, not that um, it would be required only of grocery stores, but that there are, there's the Target and the CVS, um, that they already have them, they already use them, other people can buy, can purchase those as well and have access to them. So that was the reason I brought that up, that exists already. Okay, okay. and then I guess my question would be for Nancy, if, some, if we were to enact a ban, and let's say someone was utilizing, so they could still, let's say someone still had single-use plastic bags in their home, and they utilize those in the grocery store, would they be penalized, or would the, would the retailer be penalized for an individual utilizing any leftover single-use bags that they have? So only the, the retailers would be um, penalized for distributing the single-use plastic bags. So if people have single-use plastic bags that they want to use over a couple times, usually they fall apart pretty quickly. Um, but if they want to use them, there would be no penalty for you bringing your own bags and reusing them. The penalty would only be if the retailers would provide them inappropriately. And then, question in regards to exemptions. I know there were the exemptions mentioned on produce bags. Were there any other exemptions that the board considered maybe as related to retailers or as far as maybe like chains versus non-chains? business size, business type, were any of those considerate, you know, were those any other considerations brought to the board about that? So we didn't, were the, did the board, that? so we're not suggesting that any uh, retailers, regardless of their size, um, are exempt. The The exemption would, was focused on uh, safety, so we don't want um, fish or meat that uh, would be put into a plastic bag for safety reasons being banned, okay? but it's the bags that you put your, your purchase items in to remove from the store to your home. So those are the bags that we would suggest be banned, and that would be across the board regardless of the type of retailer. Did that answer your question? It, it does. Thank you. Um, I do have a few other items, but I'll save those for discussion. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Okay. Uh, any... Uh, questions yeah I have a, f a few questions um, is the recommendation on the 40% recycle conduct it, to make that part of the 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 um, improper use so it'd be illegal I mean so w could you be fined the, whatever the hundred dollars for having a paper bag that wasn't 40% is that the intent to insert it in that section or to insert it in a different section 
if it becomes a requirement, if we add that language as a requirement, then it would also be part of the process with the warning and the fee. I did also want to clarify um, and maybe give a little bit of context on this 40% post-consumer recycled content, is that there are some cities that have uh, passed uh, single-use plastic bag bans, and some of the retailers, uh, you see what the definition of a single-use plastic bag is within that ordinance, and then they get a bag that's just a little bit thicker um, to be able to distribute at the checkout. Uh, so the 40% post-consumer recycled content, like Nancy mentioned, is just getting that plastic that already exists um, into making these new uh, reusable thicker uh, bags. I will also mention that some of the stores um, that have the 40% post consumer recycled content are within their single-use plastic bags. This is not saying that if the single-use plastic bags are 40% post-consumer recycled content that they will be okay. So just to clarify, no single-use plastic bags under four mil, regardless of uh, recycled content, right? But what it's saying is that those are banned and then what is distributed as uh, the single-use paper bags or reusable plastic bags. So like Sprouts has a little bit thicker uh, bag uh, that is reusable. Their website says it can be used up to 125 times. So that is the type of bag that uh, would that the Sustainability Advisory Board would like to require the 40% post-consumer recycled content. Hopefully that's not yeah. confusing. It's a little confusing, but um, I assume we'd see it if it came back that way. Is that um, something that's easily identifiable by a code enforcement officer? Like, is it marked on the bag? Like, this is 40%, that's an easy. The Sustainability Advisory Board, um, with the language of adding that 40% post-consumer recycled content is saying that it would have to be printed on the bag as so. So the bags would be identified, um, which currently those um, grocery stores that Nancy mentioned do have, um, the bags have been printed on them that they have the 40% post-consumer recycled content. I'm thinking of some of those paper bags um, that have that um, from Target and some others. Yeah, I guess I'm more concerned about the the local restaurant downtown who wants to put the, you know, carry out into a, a paper bag. Is that something you, if you buy paper bags or is it marked on the bag that they, they know what they're buying and they would, wouldn't get caught up in that? Or is that something you have to special order and special print or do you know? I would not know the specifics um, of what's available for retail. I'm sure that if they go out and place a special order, they could get bags that are imprinted with that information on there. Um, without the information on there, it will be really hard to enforce the 40% post-consumer recycled content. Just looking at a bag without. That was one of my concerns. Um, just curious, I, and maybe this is a question for Randy, maybe it's a question for the you or the, the committee. I mean, we have a bunch of different ways we enforce ordinances. Some have 14-day warnings, some have abatements, some have 30-day warnings. Sometimes you can abate and not fine. I mean, this is a warning, but it doesn't have any time provision, doesn't have any, you know, 14 days to come into compliance or 30 days like we do with a nuisance. It doesn't have any other provision besides a fining mechanism. 
or sometimes we have orders of abatement, agreements, mediations. Was any of that discussed, like the different enforcement mechanisms or um, how we might look at some of the other provisions of the code and use those in this? I would defer that question to uh, Randy with the enforcement. Uh, this, is Randy, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy uh, City Attorney. When we were looking at this and how we were doing this, it was a little different than, than, than maybe a compliance situation in that, you know, if these are banned and if they're using them, they're violating the law. So we give them a warning and they should come into compliance immediately. That was, that was the thought process as we went along. And, um, you know, we didn't see any point in giving them 30 days or something else like that regarding a zoning problem that might necessarily be intentional. And so that was the, the process and that was the thought process going there. But, you know, it can be changed, it can be uh, modified or amended, however the city commission wants to do it. But that was the thought process regarding the, the warning. Would you, if we added the 40, this 40% 40 recycled content, would that change your thought about how it's as obvious that they're violating it and maybe have a different provision in there? To put you on the well, spot. We, we, <laughs> Randy Larkin, Deputy State Attorney, definitely could. Um, again, you know, I think it's, it's, it's cut and dry. You know, it's either a single-use plastic bag or it's 40% post-consumer usable uh, product. And if it's not, then, you know, it's not. So they get the warning. So I think the, the the concept behind the warning came from the sustainability advisory board. They wanted to not punish them right away, but give a warning so that people could come into compliance before they get start going down the path of, of having penalties. And uh, so it could be done that way. Um, I would say, you know, looking at it, maybe I wouldn't do it that way, but it's not my decision. It's up to the city commission to decide how they want to do it. And it could definitely, we could put in a time frame of, coming to compliance or something of that nature if the city commission wanted to do that. Well, I, I'm putting you on the spot, Randy. Let me ask you, on the establishment, you know, the definition of establishment, I'm curious, you know, it talks about vendors of perishable and non-perishable items, the sale or distribution, and then it talks about vendors, retail, and all that. I was trying to think of different places I've gotten plastic bags. What about a dentist who gives you your... Um, you know, your toothbrush and your, um, uh, what's that called, floss? Floss in a little bag that has a, you know, a little bag that has a, you know, a smiley little tooth on there. Is that a, is that a, would, would that qualify as an establishment under this? It's Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. No, it would not. We thought about that, that, that particular thing. We also think about the newspapers being thrown on the driveways with plastic bags. Those are not covered by the, this one. Okay. Those are my questions. Thank you. Okay. Uh, any any additional questions? All right. Okay, I have one quick question for okay. for the sustainability advisory board and discussing where you know, if we implement this, we're looking at a January one twenty four. Um, effective date has there been discussion around supply that transitioning what 
I guess what the fiscal impact would be for establishments as defined by this draft ordinance to do a, you know, to transition to that. Uh, and has there been, and did the board, does it, has it prepared or does it anticipate preparing any type of supports, recommendations to any type of like a retail association as to how to go about transitioning to this if, if we were to pass this ordinance or move towards passing it? So the Sustainability Advisory Board members spoke with and, and contacted a number of vendors in our area um, to find out whether or not the um, thicker um, plastic bags are available and whether or not the 40% post-consumer content bags are available. And the answer was yes, they're available. Many of them use it. There are many cities uh, and Washington State requires those to be used. And so they are available to retailers. Um, and so it would not be a, a difficult transition for retailers in our city to do so as well. Do we, oh, real quick, one more. Sorry. More question. Um, as far as the identifiable piece of the special bags, I'm just gonna call them special bags. <laughs> is the best practice, has, is it the best practice to have something identified? Because I guess my question is, I, you know, if I'm a retailer, I don't wanna have to pay extra to put on the bag that it's 40% post-consumer if it's 40%, it should already be on there. So I just, I didn't, are we assuming that that information is not on those bags and that a retailer would have to pay an additional cost to have it placed on there? Or is that information already designated on such bags? So that information is currently on the bags that are used in the city and in uh, Washington State, for instance, and other, uh, other cities that use this requirement of 40% post-consumer recycled content, it's already printed on the bag. So it doesn't appear as if uh, this would be an added requirement, something they would have to pay extra for, that it's already on there uh, in both gotcha. the paper and the plastic, the thicker plastic bags. Got it, okay. That is all for now. Okay. Commissioners, if I could just uh, make a comment on enforcement, something came to my mind that maybe should be um, discussed. Sure, uh, sure, Let's go ahead. So just going to, uh, so this is the way I would see this play out. So if we went to an establishment and they were in violation, we would give them a warning. Well, to, to follow up on that warning, we probably would have to go back for a re-inspection to make sure they're compliant. We would just give them a warning and walk away. So perhaps it would be a good idea to identify a time period for compliance that would be established in the code. That way we would go back after so many days and then if they're still out of compliance, we would proceed to the, to the you know, going through the filing a complaint, so to speak. Is that kind of what you were getting at, Commissioner? Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I think uh, seems to be, that would be reasonable. Um, 
Are there any additional questions for staff on this one? Okay. Seeing as none, I go ahead and open it up to public comment. Hi, uh, my name is Jasmine Hyde. I've, this is my first city commission meeting ever, so <laughs> bear with me. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, I just am kind of here to advocate for a plastic bag ban. Um, I run the uh, sustainability and refill shop less downtown, so I'm already kind of committed to that. Um, I think that, um, as with any kind of change for anywhere, there's got to be a transition period for it. Um, but ultimately, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I'm sorry, I had more to say. I'm not nervous. Um, I think that um, I kind of had some questions on what resources might be provided in the same way for like businesses um, to make that transition. Um, I also had ideas to maybe find some kind of like corporate sponsoring or partnering um, to host. Uh, you know, kind of reusable bag giveaways or something. Um, I've had a lot of feedback about concerns about um, accessibility, um, so I think that's something to consider. Um, but overall, I just think that our dependence on single-use plastic, and uh, especially in the form of plastic bags, that are just going to go from the store to home. Um, we have an over-reliance of it and over-dependence of it, um, and it's something that's kind of a slight convenience, uh, more as something that we think than a necessity. Um, so I think that's all I have. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, I, I'm Joe Douglas. Um, I'm really excited about this uh, ordinance. Uh, this, it's been a long time coming. It's been a, a long process. And I, I really want to express my appreciation for the um, sustainability advisory board and the and the city staff who have put an awful lot of, of really good work and, and thought into this and I think they've come up with a really good ordinance I think this will do the job um, will make our community a much better place um, and I, I think the only I mean, there, there are some details that, 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 that might be changed, but I, I think as long as the essence of, of, the, of the program stays the same, I think this is going to be something that we all are really going to be proud of. And I hope that Lawrence will stand as an example for other communities who maybe can follow our example and, and do the same. So thank you very much for, for pursuing this. Hello, my name is Margaret Cremar, and my only comment would be to please implement this as soon as possible and not delay past January 1st, 2024, because some of us have worked so hard in 2020, 2022, and 2023 at the legislature to make sure that they did not pass the bill which said that municipalities cannot decide whether or not they're going to regulate something like this. So again, if this is delayed, if it's drawn out unnecessarily and unduly, there is a possibility that the Republican legislature will get that bill passed and all of this work will have been for naught and go right down the drain. Thank you. 
Uh, good evening, I am Tad Kramar, and I strongly urge you to pass this proposed single-use plastic bag ordinance now. This has been studied and discussed for years, and there's no reason for further delay. Plastic bags, immense harm to the environment, global warming, public health, wildlife, and aesthetics is well summarized in the whereas clauses of the proposed ordinance. Uh, and a ban would actually benefit local merchants because they would no longer need to incur the expense of providing single-use plastic bags. Hopefully more people would start bringing their own as a result of this. Uh, the Lawrence Journal World reported that Kroger announced it would transition to reusable bags by 2025. Aldi will do it by the end of this year. And the Merck eliminated single-use plastic bags in 2013. If these stores can do it, so can everyone else. Change takes some effort and leadership and is not the easy way out. But we must not let this paralyze us into inaction. Let's stop talking and make Lawrence a leader in achieving this highly beneficial change. Please approve the proposed single-use plastic bag ordinance now. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Um, okay, when it comes to the cost, um, this the the talk about um, the cost of enforcement got me to thinking about when you all took away the body. Um, autonomy of 18 to 21 year olds by raising the smoking age to 21. And that didn't co cost the city anything because when it came to that, you, you passed the cost on to the smoke shops. So why is it when it comes to smoking, you can make the smoke shops pay for that, but when it comes to grocery stores, you want the taxpayers to pay for it. Um, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not here to bitch. But I'm just thinking. What if we quit enforcing the 18 to 21 year old, like that, the smoking ban on that, and we use the like we use those resources to go after the plastic bag ban instead. Also, when it comes to this plastic bag ban, I don't think it's going to be. There's, there's not going to be much need for enforcement five to ten years from now, I don't think. You could easily just say, hey, we're, we'll hold off on this 18 to 21 year enforcement and we'll pick it up once we don't need to be doing the plastic bag enforcement as much. Also, other ideas I had, um, we, we were talking about adding another code enforcer. Why not add another sustainability employee and put that because also we got to be thinking, hey, we're probably not going to need as much enforcement years from now, but we probably will need a sustainability employee that could be doing other stuff, like when it comes to sustainability. And if, when we talk about enforcement, I, I'd like to think, well, at some point, maybe we can restructure the police and not have them looking, going out for noise ordinance complaints uh, and have that on the ordinance department, you know. So if we're going to add someone for enforcement, well, why don't we hold off on that when, until we're 
and do it with, with restructuring the police, but if we're adding an employee for this, let's do it with the sustainability and have that person do the, 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 the enforcement for bags right now. But really, I think we should be, if it was up to me, and I'd, I'd like to say I am running for commission, if I was sitting up there, I'd be doing away with whatever enforcement we're doing with the 18 to 21 year old smoking ban. And I'd put that, that, all that resource into the plastic bag ban. Thank you. Is there any more comment here in the room? Hi, I'm Michael Allman again. I'm with Sustainability Action Network. Um, as Crosby, Stills, Nash sang, and as Joe Douglas just said, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> Longer than many people might even realize, actually. It was in 2011 when Terry Wilkie initiated this whole thing. Before she was a member of Sustainability Action Network. Um, and at that time, the, the sustainability director deemed it not important enough to take on. Um, so it wasn't until 2015 when Terry brought it up again and the Sustainability Advisory Board then took it on, as well as the Kennedy School kids. Um, a data point, though, to add to what Nancy and Kathy mentioned earlier, plastics industry overall account for about 16% of global climate emissions. So just that, add that to the equation. Uh, aside from all the, the, the plastic garbage patch in the ocean and everything else, this is a climate issue. Um, as far as the employee for enforcement goes, if it's gonna be like pretty much everything else that's done in the city, uh, I think Mr. Jimenez or Mr. Owens could, could verify that a, a very large part of our enforcement efforts are on complaint basis. Most of you know the, the, the code enforcement isn't from officers making rounds and checking up on people and, and coming back again and again. Uh, initially, in the first year or so, they probably will, but you know, are they gonna be going to every restaurant every month, every whatever, you know, it's, it's gonna, you know, it'll take on whatever form it takes, um, but over time, that's gonna drop off and it's gonna be on a complaint basis. So I would keep that in mind. Um, likewise, enforcement staff in general right now, as, as much of the rest of the staff of the city is, is grossly understaffed. They have way more than they can do, so adding two-thirds of a full-time employee to that, if nothing else, is, is an advantage. Um, finally, I've been using a recycled, reusable bag for years and years, uh, two different kinds. This is a cloth, and I re request that most people get cloth. The whole idea is to, re to reduce the use of plastic, so I say yes to this ordinance, cloth bag. I also use a ripstop nylon bag that it's keep in your pocket, but it's a big bag, and it's lasted some 25 years. Time. So thank you for doing this. 
Ed Holcomb, uh, moderator for Lettuce, Lawrence Ecology Teams, United Sustainability. What a relief it will be for the commission not to have me come up here uh, all these years. Uh, it started about four and a half years ago, and uh, I heard about this from a woman who was in one of the uh, uh, green teams of the nine different faith communities that Lettuce represents, an interfaith group. And she said, you know, plastic needs to be addressed in this city. And we discussed it and we said, well, that's something Lettuce can do. And we went to Lettuce and the other faith community said, yes, we need to go and to educate ourselves, et cetera. Well, the next week, I get a phone call from Kennedy Elementary School. The fourth grade teacher says, would you come please and listen to the class that uh, went to the city commission with, a, I believe, a five-minute film about plastic in the ocean, and the city commission listened to them and responded affirmatively. Well, you know, fortunately, I think those students who are in the fourth grade are going to see an ordinance before they graduate from high school. <laughs> That's an accomplishment. I really think it is. I know it's been hard work. I do know also that we as uh, faith communities, and I think we represent approximately over 2,000 different memberships, but we really want to advocate and will educate and ask people, you know, find ways for people to get their bags. If we need to, well, we can subsidize that, but I think as the woman before mentioned, I think some organizations need to educate and to make available these bags to people that might also feel like, oh, I can't get one, and we can help that happen. So I just thank you, I appreciate, I celebrate, I'll probably be seeing you again on a different issue, but uh, this is a good one uh, to at least tentatively conclude. Thank you. Is that all the public comment in the room? Uh, Terry Wilkie. Thank you. So I want to point out that in the fall of last year, the federal government passed the Inflation Reduction Act, and that provides $391 billion available to governments, including state and city and local governments. You do not have it to have a tax liability to apply for these funds. Is it easy to apply for these funds? No. Is it time for the city of Lawrence to put an FTE or a full-time employee in place to learn how to apply for some of the Inflation Reduction Act funding for our environmental well-being? Yes. Can we do it? I think we can. And I'm glad to hear that we're going to start on waste, which is a huge problem of ours. Thank you very much. Kay Johnson. Hello, my name is Kay Johnson and I am a member of the Lawrence Sustainability Advisory Board and I fully support um, the single-use plastic bag ban that uh, we've discussed for many years now. So we really hope that the city commissioners can uh, get behind this and uh, request staff to give them a final ordinance um, so that can be voted on. And I also would like to point out, and I have a, I don't know if you can see this or not, but this is a paper bag and it is printed with the, um, 
40% post-consumer waste symbol on it. Um, the largest of the grocery stores do this now, and I've seen them on some of the very smaller ones too. So that is also a good consideration for this ordinance. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Appreciate your consideration on this. William Steele. Just tell them you take it. Sorry, sorry, I, I forgot to unmute there. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I just want to uh, quickly uh, echo what others have said. Um, I also support uh, the ban on single-use plastics. Uh, the last time I faced the commission about this issue, uh, I brought my own uh, reusable uh, shopping bag, which I've been using now for more than 15 years. It's got a few stains on it, but uh, you know it's held up pretty pretty well. But I, I brought it to uh, to demonstrate uh, the impact that you know just one of these bags can have on the environment. Uh, you know, I estimated that uh, I've saved probably 2,500 bags from the landfill. You know, I just went shopping this morning, brought this bag, and probably saved you know another two or three bags from the landfill. Um, look, we all know that the environmental harm done by single-use plastics far outweighs their benefits, which really are mainly of convenience. And convenience is just not enough uh, justification anymore to continue their use. Uh, because the, the cost of this convenience is something that um, we as taxpayers and stewards of the environment, and we're all stewards of the environment, um, whether we realize it or not, uh, we're all paying for it. Um, in one way or another. So please approve this ban. Uh, as Nancy said, uh, it's, an, it's an easy pivot to make to go to reusable bags. Uh, when I lived in Eugene, Oregon, uh, they issued a single-use uh, ban on plastic bags. It's now a statewide ban. And, and I can tell you that the transition was very smooth. Uh, people just changed their daily habits. Um, I don't recall any issues with enforcements, uh, with enforcement. People just, you know, they just brought their, their own bags when they went shopping. It was not a big deal. There's a movement to eliminate these plastics, and, and Lawrence should really join this movement, movement and, and they should join it now. And uh, that's all I have to say. That's all the public comment. All right. All right, and bring it back to the commission for discussion. Um, I had a quick one, if I can jump in real quick, um, uh, of staff, uh, just from uh, someone, uh, one of the public commenters. Is there any plan in place for, I know it's going to be about six months if we were to um, progress this further. Is there any plan in place for any sort of education on both the retail and uh, consumer side in regards to this? This is Kathy Richardson, the City Sustainability Director. So if the commission were to move uh, this ordinance forward and um, vote on it, I would say that, uh, again, 
I, I know this question was asked a little bit before for Nancy. We were estimating that time frame of about six months um, notice to uh, the establishments, uh, but certainly we would have some information and educational material for all those impacted. Uh, so certainly that is part of the plan if uh, this is to move forward. I, I had a couple questions that one I forgot to ask, one that popped up. And Randy, this is probably for you again. I asked uh, the, uh, uh, Commissioner Finkeldeye, uh, if you don't mind me saying, I noticed that Commissioner Sellers had her hand up. Before, oh, okay. Ask my Sorry. question. If you can go ahead. Go ahead, Commissioner Finkeldeye. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, Randy, this might be a question for you too. I'm a lawyer, by the way, so I ask these sorts of questions. Um, we, we talked about like the dentist example, but I'm thinking then like we have schools and we have religious institutions on the list of establishments. So like if, if a Sunday school teacher or a kindergarten teacher gave out you know, a few things in a bag, on a Sunday morning or on a Monday afternoon to send a project home with their kids, that would be, they're listed in there, so that would be barred. But the dentist wouldn't be barred? Or are you thinking when it says schools and religious institutions and governmental institutions only if they're selling them? Well, but it says sale or distribution. So would the Sunday school teacher or the kindergarten teacher be in trouble for distributing something? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I don't believe that was the intent of this, so that may need some fine tuning before it comes back to you. So that's, that's an excellent point, excellent discussion. And then I, uh, actually someone asked me to ask this question. So you have the produce bag effect, which is, I think, you know, you're inside Dylan's and you pick up some food and you put it in a bag and then you take it to the front and then they put it in a non-reusable bag. But if you're at the farmer's market and you are buying a thing of lettuce and they put it in a produce bag, do you still get the exception, even though that is a point of sale? It, under the establishment, it's considered a point of sale because you're not, the produce bag exception says only if you're transporting within the establishment to a point of sale. Would that, because it's at the point of sale, could they not do that at a farmer's market, but they could within Dillon's? It's Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. What's that to keep? purpose of the produce bag or the product bag is to keep things from contaminating each other. So if that's going to be the case, you know, you might be at the farmer's market and you might buy a chicken and you might buy lettuce and you might buy tomatoes and it very well might a produce bag. I, I would guess that the point of entry or the point of sale or the point of transaction would be as you leave the, the place. So if you had, you know, a produce bag, you know, with those things in it, you can place it into a reusable bag and, and then leave the premises and keep everything safe. Okay. And I think that's I think that's the goal of everything is to make sure that, you know, the health, safety, and welfare is protected. So we would think of the entire establishment as the farmer's market, not right. not that. Okay. Thank you for those two questions. 
Commissioner Sellers. So, Randy, to the point that Commissioner Finkelstein made about schools and religious institutions, where if a teacher was to give a student something, would this ordinance cover a church that perhaps has a cafe and they sell items and are they, if they were to bag those items up at point of sale, then the items that which the, if the items they purchased were placed in a bag, those bags would need to be PCRC, post consumer recyclable. <laughs> I don't wanna say cause I get tongue tied. Touch was on, but I, would that be an example of? Because I, I know we're splitting hairs here, but I, I see what Commissioner Finkelstein is saying that there's an unintended population. You know, there may be a population here that's affected. But I mean, some of your larger churches do have cafes or shops that have bookstores or have items that you can purchase. So, is it the assumption that? These, yeah, Deputy City Attorney, the intent was a book sale, a bank sale, uh, other places that have maybe things for sale, maybe they have a yard sale, some things of that nature. It was not intended basically for uh, teacher and school children, so we'll need to revisit this section and and, and fine tune that definition. So, okay, a couple of questions. this is maybe Kathy for Kathy Bryan or <clears throat> SAB. Based on the definition of establishments, what would that put? What would that number be in the city? How many establishments do we have? What is that quantity? <laughs> I don't know if uh, Jeff or Brian on Zoom could help with that question. Uh, Brian Jimenez, assistant director for official financial development services. I I don't have that answer. Uh, perhaps Jeff could give a ballpark based on census information. More Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, Commissioner Sellers, I don't happen to know off the top of my head because we uh, don't have a business licensing program, so it's hard to track which businesses are going and which businesses are closing out. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when we do the retail market survey, we've got uh, in the neighborhood of a few thousand spots that we look at. That's only in certain zoning districts. My hunch would be is it's probably thousand, two thousand potentially. Just kind of working off the top of my head very quickly. Okay. Thank you for that. So then that leads into my next question. If we were to bring this on board, what does what does the compliance mechanism look like? Are we creating a registry? Uh, how do we recognize new businesses that come in and that identify as an establishment? How do what is the mechanism to add them to the registry to ensure that they are compliant? What would that look like? I'm getting it. I know I'm putting the cart before the horse, but this is valuable information to me. It's Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I, we're not going to establish a registry. If they are in the business of selling goods, selling goods, whether it's perishables or other goods, and they are using single use plastic bags, and we get a report of that, then we will investigate to determine whether they're in compliance or not, and whether they're in establishment or not. You know, it might be a one off deal like a teacher handing out treats or something that might not 
qualify, but if it's a business that's that's selling food or other types of goods, then we would we would look at it and make that decision on a case by case basis. But that list of initial compliance would be created by us then to without a registry or it's just so I mean I'm trying to understand what we're enforcing if we don't have a list of this Randy Lark and Deputy City Attorney, we have a number of laws where we don't have licenses. We're not intending to license businesses. Right. If you're in the business of selling products or produce and people leave the point of the store with single-use plastic bags, that would be against the, the ordinance. And then we would investigate to determine whether they're in compliance or not. And if they're in compliance, then, you know, nothing will happen. And if they're not, then they'll get the warning and then, then move on down the chain. So it's, it's really no difference than, um, you know, noise ordinances or thing. We'll just investigate as the complaints come in. Okay. Okay. Any further discussion on this? I, I guess I would say a few things. Um, I would like to see, you know, in the final ordinance, the, um, you know, the redefinition of the establishment. I think maybe if you just limited it to people who are selling things and took out distribution, that might solve some of that issues. Like, you know, when the church is selling something or school is selling something, that's different than distributing something. Anyway, something to look at. I also think we need the warning to have a, a look a look back period of 14 days or 10 days or 14 days you know um, one again I'm not worried about you know the you know if whether or not Dylan's is going to comply with this we don't need an enforcement officer to figure that out I mean they're going to comply I mean the question is is going to be some small business who you know doesn't regularly do this and then you know they you know they're a business and, and all of a sudden they hand something out or they sell something and they think it's a produce bag or they think there's an exception or they think that, you know, well, they didn't even know about it, um, you know, and then they get in trouble. I think we need at least a 14-day look back, you know, warning with a, with a response. Um, and again, maybe if we're clarifying the farmer's market, question maybe there's a way to do that a little better i mean i don't someone who goes to the farmer's market was confused about whether or not what they did is a produce bag because they sell produce or if it was a single you know they were an establishment because they sell things but they put them in a plastic bag they were unclear whether or not this applied to them or not so maybe some sort of clarification on that would be good as well. Um, and again, I don't, I don't imagine that enforcement's gonna be the big problem on this, but, and I, 
don't necessarily want to overcomplicate it, but you know, in the nuisance provision and in and in a couple other provisions in our code, you know, we have exceptions that allow the municipal judge to waive fines if certain things are met, and you know, they, you know, um, we have up to a hundred dollars, but you know, this is subject to a fine of $800. So it's unclear to me, I assume the judge could not waive that in a particular situation, as opposed to saying up to $100, up to $200, um, or if there's extenuating circumstances to allow that. I mean, I, the, the, clearly the goal here is not to, you know, to fine, it's, it's to bring people into compliance, and we certainly have to have something there, but I'd be interested in looking at that. And lastly, I'd say I'm not, well, I, I, two things I'd say. I'm not 100% sure I'll vote for this, but I, I, I am, I, I really need to see this 40% recycle bag, how it fit into this ordinance and where it fell, and know a little bit more about that if I was going to put that into the ordinance. Those are my thoughts. Um, to uh, piggyback on that or to clarify that, I wonder, I, I know there was rather a lot of research that went into this um, by the Sustainability Committee um, during COVID when there were supply chain issues. And does anyone who did that research know if some of those supply chain issues have resolved themselves recently at that time? you know, there was maybe a consideration of, okay, in six months we're gonna do this, or what, and, and, and then kind of a follow-up um, for Brian, 14 days actually doesn't sound like very long for you or for them. What, is, is that unrealistic? Is 14 days unrealistic just in terms of administrative work and um, follow-up? Uh, Brian Jimenez, co-official assistant director of planning development services. Um, that, that's a typical, you know, that's sometimes we give longer depending on the type of code violation. I think, I think the question, you know, that we should ask ourselves is, is we can get back sooner than that. I mean, we're, we're visiting, there's a violation, we issue a warning. I, I would envision us on that warning document um, submitting a reinspection date for us to come back to get the establishment of fair and clear, you know, direction on what we expect. I, I think that's reasonable if we want to, you know, if we want people to still be able to use them for, you know, quote, 13 days and on the 14th day they have to comply. Um, yeah, we can do that. Um, I was actually thinking a little bit sooner than that, to be honest, but at 14 is where you want to land. Um, that, would, that would be doable for us. Brian, were you thinking more along the lines of like 72 hours? What were you thinking? I was, yeah, well, I was just thinking how many plastic bags that in violation could go through the checkout lanes or point of sale in 14 days. That'd be quite a few. I, I would say, um, to piggyback on what Randy said earlier in the conversation about them being a ban, therefore they're, they're at, you know, they're again, they're in violation of our ordinance. I would say probably five business days, something like that, five to seven business days um, to cut down that time period where, you know, um, that, that should be able to give them a reasonable amount of time to comply. Um, 
That was my thinking. I wanted to address Commissioner Shipley's question about the supply chain issues. None of the um, vendors that we spoke to mentioned any issues with the supply chain.
PCRC bags is that where from an educational component, this is not a ban, but better yet, this is moving us in direct of choice of more environmentally conscious products. And I know that's a play on words, but it is what it is. It's moving us slowly in a direction where people may not be fully ready to get on board with this. And so it's not a complete plastic ban. Like we're not eradicating plastic bags from our community. We're moving to a more environmentally responsible product, paper and plastic, in addition to cloth, nylon, and all the others. It's creating choice so that people can make smart economic and environmental choices based on where they are. So we're meeting the consumer, the community member, the constituent halfway. I think that's going to be important to how we share this with our community um, and that it's bigger than a ban. It's moving us towards being more environmentally cautious and aware to make decisions and making good decisions based on where we are. So just wanted to to put that in because I we're, we're, we, we, we've talked a lot about ban and enforcement and that gives me heartburn and we're not talking about the good smart things that we that we're doing with this which is helping people make better environmental choices about uh, you know that could not only will protect our environment but protect our community but also help create better uh, practices um, in their shopping or, or things of that nature so wanted to make sure we push that. Um, with all of this, preemption will always exist. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to jinx us. Um, I think for some of us that have lived in the Kansas legislature, we don't, it, it, we live in the dystopia that it can be and that it has been the last few years, is that we as, as local elected stand firm in protecting our right to home rule. And that I think in educating individuals that this is bigger than a ban, um, I'm not saying it, it takes us out of the target zone, but hopefully it will educate those misinformed and disinformed legislators that what we're, we're not, not to take something away from us that we know how to do. So Wichita may not be ready for this. Johnson County may not be ready for this. Salina may not be ready for this. Uh, Nemaha County may not be ready for this, but Lawrence is. And so the idea that us doing this now covers us from any type of preemption, that's just not true. But I think the way we message this and the way we <clears throat> roll this out to the community um, hopefully mitigates any type of uh, preemption grab that we would see uh, from from Topeka, from our, our, our state folks in Topeka. So I just want to push on that. So yeah, I think if we can add the 40% uh, post-consumer recycle content, change the language and the fines, um, and recognizing that, I, I think we may be close to something that I could I could agree on. Um, as far as the point about the tobacco piece uh, that Mr. Flowers brought up, I did just want to make a note to say that HB 2269 passed in April. So we're not banning cigarettes from anyone. That's federal law, and now it's state law that you have to be 21 in this state to purchase tobacco products. And so our tobacco retail license ensures that our retailers are not um, skimping on their state um, statute requirements, as well as their local requirements. So um, that's all I have. Thank you. All right. 
Um, yeah, I would agree with all the above, uh, the 40%, um, fines and fees, and also nailing down our, the further definition of an establishment and distribution, I think would be helpful uh, to what uh, Commissioner Finkeldy pointed out earlier. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think this uh, provides us a great opportunity to um, provide more education on the retail and consumer side up until uh, if if we decide to proceed with it, um, the inaction of it. So, um, but yeah, anything else? Um, I, I, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I would like those things to be uh, the selling versus distributing and the 14 days or the five to seven days, uh, whichever staff thinks is reasonable or whatever I can get Commissioner Finkeldye on. Um, I would like the most amount of um, consensus on this that, that I could get. I would like to see that. Um, and um, I, I do kind of want to clarify something too. Um, while I am totally fine with adding NFTE for this and for any extra work that this doesn't generate that they use that work elsewhere, that's um, efficiency to me. Um, also, just because we passed this ordinance doesn't mean that that's going to actually happen in our budget. <laughs> it means that's what staff recommended. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, it, I do agree with that statement. Okay. We have a lot a lot of work in the budget right a lot of uh, priorities we're going to need to balance out so and this this is one way to to do this uh, there may be others right we'll look and and also the clarification. no yeah um, and also saying that to brian i would say i have been watching your comments for many years on long-term rentals and short-term rentals and as diplomatically as you have been saying it i have been hearing you say that you need more help and i know that that's true um that's not exactly the conversation we're having today but i see you and i hear you <laughs> um so with that i uh with those changes that it sounds like we have a lot of consensus on i would absolutely vote for this if, if that could come to us at our next meeting i would be thrilled all right uh craig do you have what you need you feel like we do so is that more of a question for Randy? <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, Randy. Do you have what you need? <laughs> Mr. Randy Larkin, Deputy City. Yes, Commissioner. We have been okay. excellent interaction. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So we can, look, we can look forward to see that on consent. That gives us gives you time, right? If, if you want it back for the, what is it, the June 20th meeting, we'll have it ready for the June 20th meeting. Thank you very much. Okay, so on sets doable. Good deal. All right. Uh, moving on to uh, number two. Uh, consider agreeing to the recommended financing model for the financing model for the emergency communication center as outlined in the emergency communication service assessment agreement report and authorize staff to prepare the appropriate agreements. Who do we have for this? 
I'll, I'll take this one, Vice Mayor. Good evening, uh, Vice Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Casey Toomey. I serve as an Assistant City Manager. Um, as you all know, we've been in the process of reviewing a number of longstanding joint funding agreements between the City and Douglas County. Tonight, we will be discussing one of those, uh, which is our agreement for the Emergency Communications Center, which provides consolidated 911 dispatch services for the City of Lawrence. Uh, Baldwin City, Eudora, and Douglas County. Um, joining us on our Zoom tonight is uh, Misty Bruckner, the Director of the Public Policy and Management Center at Wichita State University. Um, over the past few months, um, Misty and her team have worked with representatives from all of the cities and county to assess the current services and agreement and to uh, come back with some recommendations, including an, an alter excuse me, an alternative funding model for the ECC. She is uh, here with the final report and she's gonna walk you all through those recommendations, um, including the recommended funding model. Um, if that recommended funding model is agreed to by all of the parties, um, it would be used to craft the uh, city's 2024 budget for um, ECC services. So um, I will ask Misty to go ahead and pull up her presentation and um, turn it over to her. Great, thank you, Casey, appreciate that. Casey, I cannot share my screen. Just one moment, Misty. Okay, you should be good now. Did you hear that, Misty? You should be able to now. Okay. I did. Hopefully you all can see that. Yep. We can. Great. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Misty Bruckner. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I'm with the Public Policy and Management Center. And as Casey said, we've been working on this uh, with a, a host of folks on a leadership team to pull this together. Aside from my team at the Public Policy and Management Center, we also have um, content expert help um, from a chief uh, that assist with, with this, so he has content knowledge expert in helping us uh, work through this. So just a little background on the current agreement. Um, the county consolidated their emergency communication department uh, was established in 1994. Um, at that time, it was a split cost with 34% coming from the county and 66% coming from the city of Lawrence. Um, they had established an advisory committee um, and um, identified members to be a part of that. In 2015, uh, the city of Eudora um, was brought into that agreement. They pay 25,000 a calendar year and they have one seat on the advisory uh, committee. Um, and then Baldwin City uh, does not have a formal agreement and they pay $20,000 a calendar year um, for use of the ECC services. So when we started this project, um, we pulled together a leadership team. Casey has represented uh, your community well um, and also uh, the uh, atmosphere of being cooperative, employing this work together um, has been critical for that success. And so Baldwin City and Eudora, as well as ECC rep and um, representatives from Douglas County have been a part of that, as well as folks that are involved with public safety to make sure that we have that content expertise in, in working through this. Just a little bit about the volume. Um, 
So the information up here gives you a background on law as well as um, fire and EMS calls um, for totality. It also gives you a, an idea on the number of uh, priority or high priority calls and how those are responded to uh, within the 90th percentile processing goal. Um, and so you can see um, for the most part, um, the law enforcement um, and fire type of calls are answered close to that performance goal. Um, and we'll talk more about that as a part of the, the um, efforts to move this forward and continue to improve upon this process. And the chart below just provides you an idea on those types of, of volume by month um, across the board. We did um, 14 uh, stakeholder interviews and focus groups in November and December. Um, part of our um, belief is to engage those that are impacted by the work. Um, and so we set uh, in with a, a group of 14 different folks um, and did interviews or focus groups to hear back from them with consistent questions to see uh, what was going well, what could be improved upon, um, and following provides an overview of those findings. So what was going well, um, consistently we heard about the leadership of the ECC, um, the dispatch quality um, that the folks receive um, that are using utilizing those services, and that the consolidated dispatch was a model that they wanted to continue. Um, challenges that we heard from them were uh, concerns about partner equity, um, especially on the on the funding piece of this. Um, this is a technology-driven effort, um, and there are uh, ongoing challenges with um, changes in technology uh, as well as cost uh, of technology to put those in. So that leads to the next one on, on budget and billing. Opportunities for improvement, um, resource management, um, how those funds are used, how a care of, of human resources and use of staffing was a part of that. Um, dispatch care, this is an intense field, as you all know, as a part of the public um, safety um, spectrum. And, and care of the dispatchers was something that, that all stakeholder groups discussed. Um, and then uh, just continuing to make this a countywide operation was efforts for improvement for that were identified. We talked to them specifically about communication. Um, all uh, stakeholder uh, interviews and feedback sessions indicated that they felt this was an area that has overall going well and has continued to improve. Um, one of the things they talked about in an area for improvement is that it's largely reactive um, and problem-based and hoping that with some new governance structure that it can be more um, formalized but also move into more proactive work for the future. Um, financial structure, depending on what you are paying, uh, there were varied opinions on the legacy and, and um, those agreements. Um, there were equity concerns that were posed and the need for have regular review of the financial model was discussed. Um, the governance structure, um, they, there was some confusion even among stakeholders that are pretty active about the role of the 911 advisory board um, versus the regular chiefs meetings that happen. Um, there was concern expressed that there's a pretty high turnover or inconsistency on who's represented on the 911 um, advisory board um, and how that impacts decision making. Um, and then just some equity concerns about um, who's represented in that effort. So that was the feedback we received. We also did work on best practices across the country, um, as well as looking at models um, uh, that are here in Kansas, but elsewhere on how to move this work forward. Two primary areas um, that we focused on was the governance and then financials, and then I'll touch just a little bit on operation recommendations at the end here. 
So for governance, um, the, the current structure, just as a reminder, uh, all ECC employees are Douglas County employees. Um, the director is supervised by the sheriff, but also meets regularly with the county administrator um, and is involved with that annual performance evaluation. Um, the 911 advisory board um, was established, as I mentioned, when the center was created. It meets quarterly to share updates. Um, attendance is, is pretty, um, can be inconsistent, so that's a part of the concern. Um, the other thing that we wanted to make sure that we lift up that part of the um, things that people appreciate about the work that's done at the Emergency uh, Communication Center is the agileness of the work. So participants discussed if they run into an issue, they feel comfortable um, contacting the director, they can work out a solution and they, they can move on with that. One of the things we don't want to do is to create um, bureaucratic processes that slows down the efficiency of the work or the agilist to respond in time. Um, so we took that into consideration when we, we uh, thought about the governance structure. What we are recommending is to restructure the existing 911 board to get a focus on actual governance, um, looking at issues revolving policy, service, uh, performance, uh, focusing on budgeting and financial concerns, overall um, uh, performance of the effort of the, the entire system. We would recommend establishing regular meetings um, that focuses on planning for the future, um, reviewing current performance standards, and that those would be at the at the high level of an executive manager or their designee, um, and that that would be representatives of the city of Lawrence, of Douglas County, city of Eudora, Baldwin City, and because University of Kansas serves as a, a backup system uh, for the ECC, that they would be involved at those meetings, but as an ex officio member um, for the system. We think it's important that you establish uh, performance measures to define expectations and accountability, and that the ECC director would be providing regular updates on that. Um, much like we have talked about in, in other uh, efforts that this uh, has not been reviewed, this contract has not been reviewed um, very often. And so having that every three years that this be looked at, um, we think keeps everybody uh, current and addressing issues in time. Um, the voting uh, recommendation was something we delved into a little bit. Um, we want to make sure to emphasize that consensus is what has made success already of this work and that that is the intent going forward is to try to reach consensus as often as possible. But if not, um, we recommend because Lawrence, um, the, the funding that they provide for this, um, that they would have veto power, um, that the Douglas County would, and that Baldwin City and Eudora would have collective veto power just in case they would both vote in the negative. In the report, we spell out several steps um, that could be taken after that. Again, the framework is the idea that you're trying to reach consensus um, and be successful with that. The governing body would also have um, uh, responsibilities for providing guidance on long-term issues. Um, this is an evolving field with technology, um, and so really important to be thinking about that system approach and for the future. Um, and also, to, uh, Douglas County would uh, maintain hiring authority of the director, but we think that all members should have representation in the selection of that leadership position. Financial model. Um, 
we uh, looked at different funding formulas that were considered um, and brought forward to the leadership team. We put through some guiding principles that we wanted to help shape this decision. Um, we wanted it to be understandable and replicable. Um, we wanted it to think about the equity among the partners. We also wanted it to be something that could be um, implemented um, and, and could be be acceptable um, to do that. And we want it to be considerate of all expenses. So while we're focusing, sorry, while we are focusing on operations, um, this also would apply in thinking about capital expenses in the future. So the current financial model, um, you can see here that um, of a, a budget about 3.1 million, Lawrence pays 1.9, um, that's about a 61.75% because Baldwin City and, and Eudora uh, pay a very small percentage. Uh, it's less than 1% that they, that they pay right now. We looked at several funding options. Um, we looked at doing it just by population, um, population plus a county base, which I'll come back to, um, average call volume, assessed value, and then the total budget. Um, the average call volume, I would say when we went into this, we thought that that would um, uh, have a lot of promise. As we worked with folks that are in the business, whether that's from emergency communication center, but with law enforcement folks, um, there's a lot of challenges on using average call volume because due to length of calls, um, complexity of the calls, how calls are used um, within the radio system, um, there was not a lot of support to move forward. That is something that would be um, an easily deployed model. Um, so we came back to option two, which is the idea that the county has a commitment to do this work so that they would provide a base funding on the idea that they would have to, that they would provide this service for the general county. Um, so it's about a third of the cost that they were they were going to staff at that level. Um, and then the remaining percentage uh, would be divided among the cities that are involved in this. The 11% of unincorporated is considered as a part of the base of what the county is paying. Um, so with that um, effort, um, looking at how that aligns operational expenses, um, it puts um, the amount for Baldwin City and Eudora somewhere. Baldwin City is about 3%, Eudora is 3.67. It changes the percentage for the city of Lawrence, uh, lowers that, but it also, um, because of past agreements, adds on that administration fee. So that the cost changes goes up for that, um, just for that effort to, to move the administrate, having the administrate put administration fee uh, tacked onto to that amount. Um, so we think this aligns operational expenses across all partners. It's easily reviewed and it can be adjusted as population changes occur. Um, this is a people-driven uh, service. And so we think that having population in there is important for this. Um, this is, as you can imagine, um, a pretty a big increase for Baldwin City and Eudora. Um, so recommending an opportunity to phase this in over the next few years. Um, these numbers are based on 2022 20, actual costs. Um, so just want to make sure that we um, highlight that these costs will, will increase, that there will be a percentage increase for these. So these are not hard dollar numbers, but give an idea of what that can look like as a percentage increase over time for what they would be paying. 
lastly, I'll just hit quickly on operational recommendations. Um, these really are things I think as the governing body moves forward, things that they should have on their plate of consideration about how to continue to make uh, emergency communication center the best it can be. Part of that is automated dispatching and looking um, what is available and best practices for especially um, for fire and EMS services. The communication center building, both the, the current facility and the backup plan, there's some uh, opportunities to um, look at that for the future to ensure um, uh, services to the community are not impacted in case of something that would happen to either of those facilities. There is accreditation models that are out there um, and think that that's important that that be moved forward as a part of uh, best practices, um, as well as just professionalism uh, of the work that is done. It helps to create um, some of those performance measures for the organization that then partner organizations can look to. Um, emergency and police dispatching programs, again, is just another way to continue of a best practice that can be implemented for them. And there's already the pieces of that in place within how they do dispatching now. Post-incident analysis uh, is another uh, opportunity to look at how services are provided to the community and opportunities for improvement in the future. Um, technology, as I've mentioned a few times, this is critical for, for this work. Um, and so dedicated resources uh, are recommended for the ECC um, in the future, as well as continuing to look at staffing levels um, and then some technical things with dispatch consoles that can be improved and using cam traffic cameras and ancillary technology that can hook in directly into the system. So there's a lot more in the report about the operational recommendations that I know um, those within the service area and emergency service services um, can share more about the importance of doing that work. So that is um, the, the end of my presentation and I'm glad to answer questions um, or, or any more of the other explanations that I can provide. Okay, uh, thank you, Misty. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, bring it back to the commission. Any questions? I know this was presented to the county. Has it been presented to Baldwin and Udoya yet? Yes, sir. It has been presented at both. And generally, they have the biggest hit. I mean, how how was it received? Well, nobody ever wants to pay more, right? Um, <laughs> but I think they had been engaged from the beginning with the leadership team. They um, there was great work to let them see how this was coming. And I think they know they've you know, received services in the past at a, a pretty low rate. Um, so they uh, received the report. We're working through the budget processes and managers and staff there. We're, we're doing a great job to, to help them with that. And this, on the hiring of the um, leadership, it says Douglas County has hiring authority, but representation of all. Is that how we do the police chief? We have hiring, I mean, excuse me, not police. Fire chief, we have hiring authority with participation. Is that the same language? Uh, I don't believe the participation is mandated by any uh, agreement, but certainly that's been our practice and would be our practice. So even though the county participates, I was just trying to remember how we did that county agreement on the fire medical. If this was the same, Misty may remember. I, I know it was our recommendation that that be included as a part of that, as a as an effort to keep everybody engaged with it. Oh, I think it is included in the in the recent agreement. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. 
further questions, uh, Commissioner Friedel? There. No. Okay, uh, Commissioner Sellers. I just have one quick question. It might be a bit silly. With the option for the county paying the one third base and us paying us, Eudora and Baldwin paying based on population, is there a reason why the administrative fee could been could not have been a blanket fee split between the ten of us between the three of us or and why was it that there was an ten percent administrative fee attached to each one of us individually. Good question. What we started as kind of precedent with the Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical was the idea that agreements going forward because Douglas County doesn't do the internal administrative work as the city of Lawrence does that we would use that 10% as a way to ensure that that was included. So that's what we did with Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical. And then we did it as a part of this. And because Eudora and Baldwin City are not as a part of that, they are included in the county with the fire medical because this is a separate agreement. We wanted to make sure that they also were paying into that administrative piece as well. Um, any further questions? Commissioner Shipley, did you have any questions? Okay, making sure. All right, uh, with that, uh, I'll go ahead and open it up to public comment. Uh, there's no public comment. Okay. All right, I'll go ahead and bring it back to us. Vice Mayor, this is Casey Toomey. I did want to point out that um, Tony Foster is here. He's the director of the ECC and also Sonia Baeza, <laughs> who's the deputy director. I wanted to just say, say uh, thank you for them to them for being here and for all the work that they do for our community. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely, I would echo that. All right, back to us. <laughs> Any discussion? I just, uh, you know, thank Wichita State and, and the entire team and Misty, obviously, and, and the entire team that worked on it. I, I think much like the fire and medical, I know it's a difficult process to get to, but I think it's a, it's a fair process and it seems to, to build the consensus we're looking at for the community um, as a whole. And, you know, even more so than fire medical, this affects the whole county and all our communities. So appreciate the work and bringing everyone together and all you do on that. And so I certainly support the findings and the work that's been done. <laughs> Thank you. It's a great group to work with. We, we appreciate the opportunity to work with all of them and, and uh, the different agencies. Uh, I'm sorry. Commissioner Sellers? Just real quick, um, again, I, I have no qualms with the financial model. Um, since the, I know that this isn't, our action is in regards to the financial piece, but since there was a, a portion that discussed the governance, um, I did appreciate the three year look back to make sure that we are keeping in a timely fashion to review um, any financial models, but also the governance piece. And I know, uh, 
I hope that the team does take a look at that and build that into work along with this so that that having that three-year look back has some value to it and that there's some intentionality around building out that governance structure. So while we're here to discuss the financial piece, I think there's something to be said about um, the governance piece and ensuring that we put something in play um, and in place so that when we do this, when that team does their look back in three years, um, they can speak to that governance piece as well and that they're moving um, Hopefully they can move with some objectives and, and along with the other recommendations that were shared. So thank you for that, Misty. Sure. All right. Uh, thank you for everyone on this. I uh, really appreciate it. I uh, love that it's going towards, uh, you know, this collaboration of both city and county and individual cities within the county as well, uh, working towards this. It's these goals. So just a continuation of our fire and medical conversation. Um, and with that, I would entertain a motion. I move to recommend the financing model for the Emergency Communications Center and to authorize staff to prepare the appropriate agreements. Second. First and a second. Uh, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 <laughs> all right. Looks like there are no nays, and so it passes unanimously. Thank you guys for all of your work on this. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. That brings us to item G, mission items. And any I, I do have one commission item. Um, and I, I talked to Jeff about this. I. Um, I've been talking to tenants to homeowners who have purchased a couple lots, R7 lots, um, with the belief uh, that they could do the double density, um, but there are some provisions um, related to nonconformity that prevents them from actually building those lot, building those um, double density lots, and so I would like to see if we, if, if the commission would agree to initiate a text amendment to have the staff look at that and uh, bring it back. And Jeff, I don't know if you have any comments. I probably did an artful job of uh, explaining that, but if you have any comments. Um, Commissioner Jeff Crick, Planning Development Services, I thought it was very well done, and, and, <laughs> and it does some provisions in there that do that were there that have caused a little bit of consternation at this point, and um, just to, for the commission to know, it, it is work that we can't accommodate. We'll do some shifting of other projects to, to fit that in if that is the commission's will tonight. And, and usually, I would say, as a the guy doing the development code, I don't really want. On one hand, I don't want to push some things ahead of others, um, but these are lots, actually, they've already purchased. They have all the money to purchase the lots. They also have all the money to build the additional properties. Um, and so waiting a year and a half to see what the answer is, um, or a year, might not, I mean, I'd rather get this looked at now, if we could, understanding it is putting some burden on, on the staff. But I think moving ahead on those affordable housing possibilities are important, especially when we have the money in hand to do it. And it has to be spent by a certain time. And there is some spending responsibilities there too, correct? 
I think that component uh, makes a lot of sense. And uh, honestly, I was just, I'm just glad I was here for an, an artful explanation by Commissioner Finkel that it's almost like deciding that, hey, who's coming? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, any further uh, commission items? All right, moving us on. Um, item H, city manager's report. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Uh, I'm sorry. Craig, this is your show. Thanks. Um, we have four items uh, before you on this part. Um, two is some substance um, that um, we, we can certainly, um, we've got staff prepared to go into more detail, but um, one of them was um, the follow-up on the report from the Prairie Park um, uh, spring incident and um, what we learned from it. And we've submitted that document uh, to you and put it in the public eye so that we can uh, report out on that. Uh, Derek Rogers and his team that are involved in that investigation um, are here to answer any questions along with, with me, of course. Um, and we can make a presentation if you'd like. Um, the uh, the other item that has some sus substance is the pallet shelter update. Um, and again, we have staff here that can answer any questions about that. And, and if you'd like, we can do a presentation, but um, we did try to be very thorough in these memos so that we could answer the questions that were, that were there. Okay, and um, shall it, or I'm sorry, Sherry, <laughs> well, I don't want to say it. I'm a little bit tired. Sherry, I, I, there is public comment on the city manager's report, right? Uh, that's correct. Okay. Opening it up for, I'm sorry, first of all, any, <laughs> any questions from the commission on any of these items? Um, again, I guess I don't know which, if we're going to have public comment first or questions first, I... You know, we, uh, I have questions on both of them, I guess. Probably if we're going to do that now or after public comment. Well, let's just do, let's do public comment okay. first. All right. Uh, all right, Sherry, open it up for public comment. Go right ahead. Hi. Uh, I'm Lori Greenfield. My pronouns are she, her, um, and I come before you um, as the Prairie Park Neighborhood Association um, uh, Vice President. So um, while I appreciate the, the comments um, that were made here, we still have some uh, questions, um, especially regarding um, the uh, gift shop and um, the be, uh, being able to um, become sustainable um, through financial uh, means. Um, it was acknowledged that there is no um, a committee such or input there, um, and we would like to continue that work. We, would, we see that there's ways that we could become more um, financially stable with it. Um, the other piece to this is um, they mentioned in the report um, that there could be exhibit space um, instead of the gift shop. Um, and I wonder, my question is, was um, Prairie Park Nature Center staff 
staff uh, involved in that decision-making um, process? And what kinds of exhibits do they anticipate that there? Um, if a, um, a gift shop is not available on site, which I un totally understand um, the go going to a cashless um, type of venue um, and the, the or ramifications of um, handling cash um, and they, uh, the financial office wanting to get away from that, um, what other means could the Nature Center um, have such a, a, a shop? Um, maybe an online version um, or some other means um, to, to doing that. Um, it is also mentioned in the report um, of giving back um, to those, uh, the donations that were given uh, uh, to the Nature Center um, and what, uh, mechanisms um, have they reached out to the Nature Center to be able to do that. So, um, you know, I appreciate the report, but I still think that we have some work to do um, and the community is willing to do that um, uh, and work with them. Thank you. Back up again. <laughs> uh, my name is Ken Lassman, and uh, I'm the person who submitted the uh, uh, responses to the uh, uh, report. And in a way, it's a little bit of a cart before the horse to uh, make my comments before if there's any uh, presentation uh, made by Parks and Rec. But uh, you know, I'm very pleased with the openness of the county or the, the city as far as Parks and Rec uh, uh, stepping up to make, uh, to, to try and deal with the, uh, the mistake that, that occurred and the damage that was done. And I guess I uh, have made a series of additions to basically bolster uh, the directions that, uh, that were hinted at. I think that there is room for even more leadership in uh, asking for looking at the entire area of Parks and Rec, there's 4,300 acres of land, and uh, you know, including uh, getting Johnson County has a 184-page uh, thing that I, I referenced in my op in my uh, statement, and I, I think it makes a great model. Uh, they're very progressive. It's very consistent with sustainability goals that the city has. And uh, that you know they could work very well with that. I think the culture could be uh, a, a lot of education and training needs to happen within the Parks and Rec Department itself uh, that can be supporting the people that work there so that they become they can tell the difference between native habitat and other habitat that they manage. And uh, that's something that I think really needs to be emphasized. And I, I made a series of suggestions to their report, and uh, I guess I'd like to see those incorporated in as much as possible in the uh, report. And I guess I'm here to answer or ask if you have any questions that I could address. not thanks or not you know if they come up later I'd be happy yes. to speak again thank you 
Is there any other public comment on any of the city manager's report items? Yes, hello, my name's Hank Orisco, a longtime Lawrence resident and a biologist, freelance biologist. Um, naturally, I was very upset like everyone else was when, when the spraying happened. In my estimation, there were two, two major errors that, that happened. First of all, the, the, the prairie was sprayed, naturally, as we know, and that was unfortunate or more than that. But also, there were no signs posted. Okay, and this is a major issue because I, I taught someone else spoke at the at some sort of other meeting about the the uh, parks uh, uh, management uh, meeting, and he was saying that he went there with his uh, eight-year-old daughter, and there was no you know nothing. I don't know if he went there that day, but it's a it's a really a liability issue for the city if there's if they're not consistently putting signs up to notify people when they're spraying. I mean, and the thing is. Um, the fact that all this has happened has really shaken, in my mind, at least my my confidence, and maybe other members of the public as well, that things are not, I mean, is this being done? I mean, do they routinely do this? Is it haphazard? What is actually going on, and how are they managing it, and from from what uh, what are they doing? I mean, in, in practice and in theory, both. So I think it's really important to really investigate this more thoroughly to make sure that all the natural areas are being managed the way they should. And like you said, uh, Ken was saying about education is always a good co component of that because people should know what they're looking at, you know, when they're managing stuff. So, um, I, you know, I'd like to see the, the confidence in the Parks Department um, restored. And I'd like to see that happen by further uh, investigation and, and work with that, you know, on a community level of some kind or something happening with that. So that's uh, basically, so I don't think it's over. I mean, you just say, well, we made a mistake and now we're going to correct it, we're going to do this and this. Well, I think it's more than that. I mean, there, there's a systemic kind of, um, I don't know, a problem there that I, that I see and the confidence has been shaken, like I said. So. Um, Plus the liability issue, I think, is a big one. I mean, if they don't post it and people get sprayed with stuff, I mean, that's uh, really liability, you know. So anyway, thank you. Hi, I'm Michael Allman. Um, when I read the report, the findings of what happened or you know what was overlooked or why i i get the feeling that there's there's a sense of um i mean the, you know parks and recreation employees have very graciously apologized and said that they made a mistake but i really wonder how far they're going to go to make to correct that, and I don't mean just learning how to spray things differently. Um, I find it very troubling when, in all through the report, there are lots of excuses. Um, oh, we have a lot of staff turnover, or you know we have some 1,500 acres of grassland that we deal with. And we have a hard time make, you know, telling the difference. Um, or we were treating for uh, Cerisa Lespedeza, and you know, we didn't realize we were 
killing other things too. I mean, I don't, I don't buy that. Those excuses tell me that they're not really trying to learn from what they call a mistake. I don't think of it as a mistake if it's something that indicates an overall lack of understanding between those, 15, those 1,492 acres and the six acres of prairie. I mean, 1,492 acres of turf grass, and they think that's the same as prairie, or prairie's the same as that. I mean, that's what, that's what it strikes me. Um, if you read the report comments from Ken Lastman, um, I think I think he makes very significant points there that really should be followed. Mostly of which is that Parks and Rec needs to first of all learn, and they need to know how to do training. And to do both of that, they need a management plan um, for natural areas, not a management plan for turf grass. If your only tool is a lawnmower, every weed, every problem looks like a weed. And so you just mow it all or you spray it all. They need a management plan that really goes into details and they need somebody on staff that understands that. Um, how to get to that point, I don't know, but that's what needs to happen as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Pat Holcomb, just to make a quick comment. This is an opportunity. Uh, this is a great opportunity for this city to review and look again at what does it mean to be a park recreation department. What are parks? Are they just for people? Or they include the whole system of our kin that are not human? I mean, it is an opportunity, and I hope somehow or another we bring in people, Ken and others, who can explore, and maybe we can develop another model. Uh, might retain the same people in many different ways, et cetera, but it is an opportunity. And I hope in some way we have people coming together around a table to talk about that possibility. Thank you. the public comment. Okay, I'll go ahead and take it back to the commission for questions. I guess I'd like Derek to respond both to the kind of the gift shop exhibit space question as well as Ken's statement as well as some of the others. Good evening uh, Vice Mayor and City Commissioners. I'm appreciative and, uh, for the opportunity to speak tonight. I am appreciative of the people that came and spoke tonight with their questions. It's a very extensive memo, um, a lot of information in there. And so I'm going to condense some of it. Um, we've been working with a lot of the community partners, and I think there's a synergy and a collaboration coming out of this. And part of that is our, in our uh, integrated pest management plan. Um, to Michael Almond's point, doesn't, doesn't address prairies and grasslands. And so that needs to be expanded and it needs to be revised and reviewed. To the individual that uh, 
has also been noted, I think Hank noted it again about the signage. I, that disturbs me too. I would not want to be walking out there after somebody sprayed in my yard and I didn't know about it or in our parks. <clears throat> so that has been addressed. There is a, a huge need for training, education, coaching um, that others have talked about. Right now we have a mentor and annual training going on. Right now there's a moratorium on spraying unless it's approved by the director or the assistant director for parks. Um, I do also have Mark Hecker on line for questions tonight. I am going to talk, um, Michael mentioned the the 1,500 acres of uh, grasslands and uh, nature areas and uh, prairie that we do manage. Um, in the memo it, it wasn't our intent to say well we got so much of it and we made a mistake. Uh, because we couldn't differentiate. I think of the nature area where we took, I think it was about 10 acres, we worked with Evergy and we uh, worked with the uh, Native Prairie Restoration Group, uh, Courtney Masterson. We did a phenomenal job up there and I would suggest that you get a chance to go out to that area and look around at how well that prairie is. So we do have folks that, that manage that. Um, there's a lot in that findings and a lot in the memo that was presented. Uh, we have over 4,000 acres of, of uh, land, parkland, woodlands, uh, grasslands in our city, which I think is about double of a, an average community about our size, which is fantastic. And with over 1,500 acres of that, um, that is uh, restored, preserved grassland and prairie areas to include uh, pollinator habitats. So we remain committed to proactively rectifying the problem and we'll do everything it takes to make long-term improvements in the future to prevent uh, events like this from happening again. And part of that is uh, with re-engaging on the management plan, which hadn't been updated, I think, since 2007. It was a city plan. Uh, if you look at the requirements to spray and sign postage, <clears throat> we complied with the state um, regulations, but our city plans, which should be at a higher level, and we say this is important to the community. We engaged with the community on use of pesticides and how we do that, and it wasn't followed, and that was a problem. So that's being addressed. Um, but it also, and that IPM doesn't address um, how we manage uh, remnant prairie, prairie and grasslands that needs to be expanded. Uh, the Johnson County Parks and Recreation um, has some experts out there. Matt Garrett uh, is one of them. Um, and we have been in contact with them. Uh, I think Ken Lassman mentioned him tonight. Um, I do think there's a great synergy with the group we're working with right now on addressing how do we try to repair, rectify, and move to a better place from this incident of sprain. Uh, we're working with the Kansas Biological Survey, um, the Caw Valley Almanac, the Natural Lands Restoration, K-State Extension, uh, Sarah Bear with KBS, uh, Sharon Ashworth with the K-State Extension Office. We are working with Ken Lastman and Courtney Masterson and others. So we have a really great team and we are meeting and I think there's a collaboration and there's good coming out of this and we need to keep that going. It, it's gonna take time. Uh, we're also working on with um, how we move forward um, 
in the short term and the long term to do this. And one of the things that we've been talking in this group is what can we do to protect the remnant prairie at Prairie Park now? And what we can do and uh, is still in discussion is we can remove some of the invasive species around surrounding the uh, natural prairie to prevent some of the encroachments been going on for probably over 20 years. The honeysuckle and that, and so that takes some volunteer efforts, uh, some employee efforts, and some of our um, partners that are gonna help lead some of this initiatives this summer. Uh, it's gonna take us a little time to get this addressed, and so it's not a short-term, just snap your fingers, it's fixed, but it is a, a, an opportunity for us to come together as a community and, and move forward in a positive way. Um, regarding the, uh, the Nature Center, a lot of that goes back to, um, we did an internal review of our Parks and Rec Administrative Cash Handling Policy, and we found some discrepancies that needed to be addressed, and with uh, follow-up with our city's finance department, the recommendation was to spend cash payments and cash the cash donations box at Prairie Park Nature Center. Um, what we have done, uh, we'll continue to work with staff on how we improve processes, training, uh, improved efficiencies, and um, for the near term, and without, we don't know when, but we suspended the cash payment option there. But we do have, you can pay online, we accept checks or cash at the uh, uh, Prairie Park Nature Center at our administrative office, and we also um, can take cash at our administrative office. So we have an online donation capability now um, that is online through a website. As part of that, we also looked at the gift shop and efficiencies. Um, some of that dealt with staff time and um, handling cash and runs back and forth to the banks and safes and everything else. And it was decided that it was more practical to look at that space for future exhibits or other potential uses. And do we have that resolved right now? I don't think we do. I don't know if Annette Diggins online, if she'd like to comment on that. Uh, let me get through a few more things and we'll have Annette and um, Mark pick up what I miss. Uh, the community engagement, we did do a community engagement in September of last year. Um, and a thank you email was sent out to all the people that participated. Feedback it was tabulated and collected. And then at the December and January Parks and Rec Advisory Board meetings, we did uh, provide updates. At that time, um, we hadn't moved forward with uh, exploring uh, further engagements with the public. Um, with that, I'll ask Annette to, to catch us up on the anything I might have missed on the Prairie Park Nature Center. Yeah, Annette Dagan, Recreation Operations Manager. Um, the only other additional things I would add is that we're working real close right now with the Nature Center staff and brainstorming a, a lot of new program ideas um, that we're trying to hope to get implemented. You know, some of those are 
like additional canoeing and fishing and archery classes, um, some offsite uh, bird watching and offering, you know, maybe some offsite even canoeing trips kind of options. So with that staff time that was really being spent a lot with the with the gift shop um, and some other things, they're just really looking at all kinds of options, including that space, you know, we were pretty cramped for space already. So just opening that up is, you know, kind of nice, especially when you have 80 kids there on a field trip. Um, it's kind of nice to have a little bit additional space for them to be able to move around. Um, we have camps out there right now. And a lot of times, you know, before when we'd have those programs going on, the space was already pretty limited. So um, we're looking into all kinds of options. I know recently Ken and I talked about even doing some additional educational prairie classes out on the prairie. So um, those are some of the things that we're working on currently. And thanks, Annette. Mark, do you have comments? Yeah, Mark Hecker, Assistant Director of Parks and Rec. I, I'm really kind of excited. We have a meeting scheduled for Monday with all of our kind of regional experts. And we're going to sit down and just talk about how we've managed in the past, what we could change in the future. And I really want to pick the brains of, of regional experts on, you know, here's the problems I'm seeing in the prairie that we're having a lot of woody infestation coming in on the edges. How do we best address that? I'd like to pick their brains on best management practices there. And in fact, the Kansas Biological Survey has been already out there working. They did a full species inventory and sent me that just this afternoon. So they're showing almost 200 species currently in the prairie, and they're comparing that to a species list they had from 2001. So I, I, I haven't gotten the full details on that, but that's kind of encouraging that they've, they had what history showed and then what's showing now today. And they've, they've done that work just in the last week or two. So that's kind of exciting to me that we, we get a little bit of a scientific look at that prairie. And they're, they've really done some amazing work in a very short period of time. Courtney Masterson and her staff put together a proposal for me on, on things that they would recommend for management practices over the next you know six to eight months. So if once we get everybody in the same room, I think we can all get together pretty quickly on on here's where we are now and here's where we want to move forward and here's step one, two, three, or five. And, and here's some cost factors that may have to be factored in there. But but all in all, I'm, I'm very excited. Staff's excited to, to meet with the experts and just kind of pick each other's brains. So I feel pretty positive about it. I mean, kind of, I guess, making something good out of something bad. And with that, uh, commissioners will close and open for questions. I guess I just say thank. I mean, thanks for those answering those questions. And I, I do think, you know, as as Thad said, I, I think it's an opportunity. I think what you're saying and Mark saying, you're taking it as an opportunity. And so, appreciate that, and and appreciate seeing what what results. You know, the classic lemon lemonade out of lemons here. Um, I, there, one little piece of um, maybe accountability I want to follow up on here. If I understand correctly, you, uh, the Parks and Rec Department is moving towards some kind of accreditation. Is that correct? Yes, we're working towards accreditation. And so that process, uh, we should 
our goal is to be on track for a site visit in the spring of 24. And then uh, we would go to accreditation if, if that goes well in the fall of 24. And does that accreditation require that you review all of your policies? It requires a review. Uh, there are certain standards on what policies are required, and so not every Parks and Rec has a cemetery division or something like that. So it, it requires a review, and that's one of the things that I'm very adamant on right now is taking an inventory of all our policies and starting a review of our policies. Um, and I think we've got a meeting scheduled for this month to do that. What, what do we have? What are we missing? What should we have? What needs to be revised? Um, there's a lot of work that goes in the accreditation, and uh, it's additional duties and time, and we're going to make time to review our policies. Good. Thank you. Derek, uh, I just had an additional question. First of all, you know, I'd like to echo what I said. You know, it says it really is an opportunity to go ahead and you know move it, move it forward. And um, I know that this is just the beginning, as you said. There's a, you know the immediate actions that you are pursuing right now, with long-term goals of making it, um, you know, have more effective, efficient, and uh, sound policies regarding um, our prairies and um, grasses. Um, one uh, aspect I wanted to kind of follow up a little bit was, uh, I know you said December and January, um, Parks and Rec Advisory Board had um, revisited uh, the conversations that were had with the Prairie Park Group. I'm not sure if it was the Neighborhood Association or just folks um, interested in the Nature Center itself. Um, I was just wondering, when was the time frame for any sort of follow-up um, in terms of getting back with them and hopefully, uh, you know, working towards a plan for, you know, some, some sort of sustainability? Uh, Derek Rogers, Director of Parks Recreation. That was provided, um, an update was provided at the Parks and Rec Advisory Boards in December and January and all passed to Annette, who might be able to provide a little more information on your question. Yeah, after the, the fall meeting, we followed up with everyone that came and participated. And then the at the advisory board uh, meeting, it was primarily people that were interested in the Prairie Park Nature Center. Um, we're still kind of talking about the next step from here. We don't really have a, a clear set plan moving forward, but our intentions are that we'll work with all interested parties that, that have come forth. Okay, uh, that's good to hear. I just wanna make sure that we're expressing uh, uh, to, to the interested parties that we're still in that deliberation mode, just so that they're not left in the dark, so. Uh, any further questions? Not on that. I had questions about the Pallet Village. If we want to switch. Okay. All right. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Um, I appreciated Craig, Danny, Brandon, whoever I know. Danny wrote. I mean, I certainly understand the the technical 
issues that are causing, you know, we need to get this right with the demolition, the side fencing, the side analysis, all that. I guess my two big questions center around one, the operations contract. I think the the RFP I think closed today, so I'd be interested in an update on that, and then um, an update on what if any outside the Pallet Village, um, both the camp and other processes. Um, how do you see this changing as we as we look at those processes going forward? Now that we have a longer delay before the pallet village is open, does that change anything we have been doing or will be doing? Good evening, everyone. This is uh, Danny Walters with Planning and Development Services. Um, to answer your first question, um, yes, the RFP closed today. Uh, we did not receive any qualified um, bids for the uh, operations. So uh, staff is regrouping uh, likely tomorrow or Thursday, and we're going to figure out what our next steps are and, and how to move forward with that. Um, to answer your question about the, um, the continuation of the support site, uh, we have been uh, working with some uh, hot, water, hot weather response type items at the support site. We're providing water, we're providing a misting area. We have just put up a, um, a large community tent for the, the residents there uh, to provide some shade and then also give a place for, for people to meet up with family and meet up with, with case managers and, and, and that type of thing. Um, we are continuing with the 24 seven staffing out there. And um, I mean, as, 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 long as, as long as it's appropriate, we are, we are working towards uh, maintaining that support site until we can get the pallet village open. Thank you. Disapp disappointing that we did not get any applications. I know that's. I could not agree with you more. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Amy, this is Commissioner Sellers. Um, as far as I was looking in the in the memo, we talked about having conversations with individuals at the support site and those with lived experience. I know one of the uh, concerns that was brought up is that we're not. What does regular communication and engagement with those at the support site look like as far as accountability and just being aware of? Um, problematic behaviors uh, of individuals. So are we, has has there been an effort to restructure what regular communication among individuals at the support site between each other and with staff, has that been reestablished, you know, adjusted? What, what have we been doing with that? Uh, Danny Walters with Planning Development Services. Um, that that would be something that I would probably be more comfortable having um, Cicely comment on, and she's she's not on the meeting this evening. I can say that um, we did just start having camp meetings. They had a camp meeting yesterday morning, and uh, I believe got a lot of really good input from the residents about um, some of the things that that are going on. Some of the uh, concerns that folks had. So I think that, that that's a really good step to starting that open communication between the, the guests at the site and, and staff to, to get those voices heard and, and, and take that input in from them. This is uh, 
Brandon, I might just add to that. Um, I know also that um, our friends with heart, uh, artists helping the homeless um, have been engaged uh, quite a bit and quite frequently at the site. Um, you know, they provide uh, peer support specialists um, and then uh, in, in working directly with um, the community members at the support site. Um, and so I think that really does or has helped uh, with communication, um, how information is exchanged and processed, um, and, and ultimately the, the response to that. Um, I think also uh, we've, uh, we've been pretty successful in, in working with Burt Nash Homeless Outreach Team um, in getting case management more directly involved and more consistently involved. Um, I, we are, um, uh, through Burt Nash, working to get um, VI spadats filled out for and, and completed for each of our residents. So um, as you probably know, that is a, a key step to um, accessing services and uh, you know, uh, making progress on, on their recovery. So I think there's a lot of uh, positive momentum um, at the support site right now. And uh, I know Cicely um, Thornton has been uh, very dedicated, uh, spending quite a bit of time just trying to get uh, the, the level of service there um, to the place that we really want it. I would second what Brandon said. She's done an outstanding job at that location. I will, I will take a, a point of personal privilege to say, I know it seems like weeks ago, but it's been a couple of weeks since um, you know, those of us that participated in the summit and um, wish we had a little bit more time to you know, strategically digest and, and, and kind of decompress from it and share. I, I, you know, I, there was definitely a lot of synergy that came uh, from the space and, and convert and conversing with partners across the state uh, with the different continuums of care around just pra not just practices but strategies but also you know just how do we make those uh, in Topeka aware that the work that we're trying to do there's only so much capacity that we can do locally yeah. and that we really need their help on the state level to, to 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 give us some relief, and so, um, you know, I know what we're trying to do with the timeline. It was not most ideal, uh, but I hope that there, it, this gives us an opportunity to to tighten up on some just some relationship building that we've been doing, that we've been seeing, and um, that will continue to make this trend. You know, as we transition and go through each. Um, step of, of this project that it will, you know, help along with the engagement, and education, and understanding piece of all of this. So, you know, I truly believe that things happen for a purpose, and so while this may be a delay, it's not a defeat. So I'm hoping that we can continue to build on that, and those who participated in the summit, that we continue to pull some of those. Um, those practices that we, we heard and we discussed and we continue to build them here locally to, to help us address this. There's still some pieces that are out of our hand, um, but at least for us to be more aware so that we can be stronger advocates 
uh, for speaking that um, on the state level, which is what we're going to need to do. Um, you know, this is this is work that we're filling in need, but you know that was that was something that we discussed there, and I think it's germane to what we're talking about and how we're going to continue to build on what what we need to do to be successful in this project. So, I just wanted to. I'm glad to hear that with the work that Cicely's doing and and, and helping to reestablish and open up those lines of communication, because I know that that was something hearing from advocates as well as individuals there was sorely missed and. Uh, it's something I felt that it was low-hanging fruit that we could adjust, that we could address. So thank you for that. Um, and uh, I just had a comment regarding just in terms of how it's village and uh, neighborhood associations and surrounding neighbors and whatnot. Um, I know I saw in this memo that, you know, uh, the information is going to be dispersed as it comes a little bit, but I would encourage us to go ahead and almost not necessarily over communicate but make concerted efforts to go ahead and keep them in, in the loop whenever possible um just to make sure that uh, we're maintaining those relationships and, and building the ball those to go ahead and make this project as successful as it can be so um i just wanted to go ahead and add that bit all right any further questions from the commission I guess one thing, it's technically, maybe I should have said this at commission items, the SB 180, did we make that clear earlier that we wanted that to be looked at? I mean, we, you said we bring it up at commission items. We normally bring it up at commission items. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure staff, Courtney, I don't know what you're asking, but I wanted to be sure we're on the same page. Tony. Did you get what we needed from us? I think we, so, yeah. Okay. I just want to be sure. Just want to be sure we knew that was direct. We were asking you to look at that and bring us something. We, we've been, we have been studying yeah. it for the last couple of weeks and engaged with uh, other cities and as well as the league yeah. uh, on those, those options. And um, Dr. Muhammad and... Um, and Tony Wheeler have been already engaged in some of that work. And then that'll m move us towards looking at whatever legislation we might have, but we probably want to check within, check back in with you before that would come forward. Just because we did it differently, I just wanted to be sure we will Sure, thank you. Procedurally got to the right point though. And procedurally, that was something you all approved us looking into a few weeks back. It was yes. brought up under commission items, so we were already doing that. Okay. Thank you. All right. Any further questions? Okay. All right. Uh, just moving us on. Uh, commission calendar. Anything? Any questions? Any comments? I guess I'll just point out that we don't have a meeting next week. Um, if right. you, if you, if you. Public commenters said they'd be back next week. I just wanted to be sure it got out there that there was not me next week. And July 4th is canceled as well. And July 4th is canceled, yeah. Yeah, you guys can have a meeting. I'm just not going to be here. <laughs> okay. All right. 
uh, with that, we would entertain a motion to adjourn. Move to adjourn. Second. First and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All right. The ayes have it. Okay. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Good evening, everyone. Have a good evening.